you're listening to the Man Overseas Podcast, a show that explores methods and ideas to help you live a bigger life. You will hear interesting stories of how people live, how they save and invest their money, and why having time wealth is better than being a billionaire. If you are entertained, educated, or elevated, be sure to hit the subscribe button. We're just getting started. Now here is your host, Brad D'Antonio. Hello, friends. Welcome and thank you for joining me today. My guest is listener favorite Jared Parfait. The last time he was on the show, the episode was the most downloaded episode of the year, 2021. So I had to get him back. He's someone I respect for his relationship building skills, his parenting style, his adeptness and compartmentalization of risk-taking, which is a very underrated skill that maybe we should do an entire episode on because it's a topic that interests me very much. Not to mention he's a smart dude and great conversationalist, so I think you'll enjoy this episode a lot. We get into small talk and how it's going away due to smartphones and lack of observational skills. We get into the cesspool that is Twitter. (laughs) We get into high status, or I should say lower status individuals who attack higher status individuals on Twitter and developing yourself so that you can provide value to other people. These are just a few of the things we talk about. Making good friends after 30 years old and why that's difficult. Living deliberately and journaling. Popularity as currency wokeness as a religion, and many, many other things. Have you ever seen the video of the KGB defector? I think his name is Yuri Bezmenov. If you haven't seen it, I link to it in the show notes. you got to check it out. We talk about that also, among other things. Political correctness, fake patriotism, LeBron James's controversial political statements, and why I think he's a fraud. So much more. Great discussion. I hope you enjoy it as much as we did. And I welcome your feedback. Please contact me, uh, Man Overseas. As you know, I'm on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you, folks. Enjoy my conversation with Jared Parfait. Parfait, welcome back, my man. Thank you so much for having me back, Bradley. It's uh, it was it seems like it's been a long time, but it hasn't really been that long. We uh, we talk from time to time, and now we get to do it again and let a lot of other people listen to what we have to say. The last time you were on that episode was the most downloaded episode of 2021. So obviously, listeners like you. What do you think it is that they like about you? I hope it's just genuineness that uh, that it came off as, and just a conversation between two guys who have uh, some views. I'm not going to say opinions because that can be mistaken as something that is meaningless, but uh, just some views of things that we've thought about throughout time, and and some stuff that we feel passionate about, and, and uh, some things that we are curious about and want to learn more about. And hopefully that's all it was. So hopefully this translates into more conversation that just kind of sparks a little bit of interest in people of uh, of what we may have to say here. Yeah, we're not into small talk. I don't think. Not in a small talk, like as a no. culture, or or well, you and uh, or I. You and I. Uh, well, I think we get deeper quicker than most people, and I'm notorious for that among people that know me well. I, I don't like to engage in talk about the weather, for example. But I think small talk is probably going away anyway. I think it's pretty much dead <laughs> nowadays. Uh, people don't know how to do it. 
You know, so us being engaged in long format, I think it's the same thing too. I think a lot of people don't have a know how to have a long format conversation as much as people don't know how to tell someone good morning in an elevator. You know, that, that kind of is going by the wayside of just that outside sales mentality where you have to make a cold call on someone and pick up on something that they've seen. And I don't know. I don't know if it's one of those things that I have a knack for or you have a knack for, but it seems to be something where we can engage someone and get to an actual talking point relatively quickly. And, and I've always been able to do that. And I'm not exactly sure why. Do you have any clue where you develop that sense to be able to get to a meaningful spot and, and get past the small talk, but yet still be able to do small talk? Genuine curiosity, I think. So engaging in conversation is typically just asking about the person and getting to know them. And that ability to find common ground quickly, I don't know how I picked that up. But I, I think it has something to do with where I was raised, and that is South Louisiana. I've always felt like people down here are better conversationalists, and maybe that's a byproduct of a small town where you're kind of forced to have more conversations with people, whereas it's easier to hide in a big city. Yeah, I mean, I guess you got you got the thing. Uh, one thing that's such common conversation down here is where'd you go to school? And, and we don't mean college. Yes. A lot of times we mean high school. That's a great point. And so I think that that right there just stems from, like you're saying, that that rooted system in a, in a small town and, and that mentality of getting to know someone quickly because – if you went to whatever high school and I went to that high school, there's going to be someone that we know and a connection made from from that standpoint. But you living in Houston, and I mean, it is one of the biggest cities in America. Are people receptive to that small talk type thing uh, as much as as what they are over here to get that ball rolling of where you grew up and where are your parents from kind of thing? I'll never forget being out in Midtown one night and I was hanging out with a friend of mine's group of friends. And so a lot of these guys I didn't know. And I asked one of them, hey man, where did you go to school? And he told me what college he went to. And I said, and I think it was TCU or SMU, one of those kind yeah. of... Yeah, those snooty schools up there in Texas. Huh? Well, call it what you will. So I said, no, I'm, what I meant was where'd you go to high school? And he he got real cocky, like, like who was I to ask him where I went to high where he went to high school. And I was like, oh, I was just curious. I was trying to place you in the city, like where you're from. And he goes, oh, I thought you were trying to, to see if I went to Memorial or, or one of those schools. It's in an affluent area of Houston. Mm-hmm. So if you went to Memorial, that typically equates to higher income, what have you. So he, it was like he attacked me and he was being real pretentious. And or I guess he assumed that I was the pretentious type. Yeah, it seems like he was assuming that you were the pretentious yes. type, like putting that quick judgment on him. It was so weird. So, yeah, you know, and, and I don't ever think of that. But no, that that's that whole thing where I don't really care. It, it's a conversation starter. You know, that's what uh, I mean. Hell, last time I was here, we talked about poker for like an hour. And hopefully that hopefully that stayed on the surface enough for people to stay engaged enough to listen to the whole thing last time. But I think the poker table thing was part of where like my small talk skills were were perfected. I'm not going to say I'm a, an expert in small talk kind of thing, but having someone sit down at the table and I was so worried about not having like specific poker conversations and mm-hmm. game theory and stuff that is just absolutely boring that I would try to engage them in. Oh, you're wearing a TCU shirt. Oh, you're a Horn Frogs fan. Oh, did you go there whenever they were good or this or that? And just getting them going and, and they'll give you something and that 
develops into a conversation, you know something. I mean, I would use that to my advantage to hopefully find out where they were mentally and with a game mm-hmm. of poker. But nonetheless, it was still a conversation. It was still something I would remember that person. If I saw them the next day, if we were playing like in Vegas or something, I would recall that conversation. And, and we had a starting point going from there. And I, I think it's no different than just a day-to-day life thing. Whenever you see someone and you meet a stranger and you try to put them in a place, that way the next time you meet them, it's it's good to see you. It's not nice to meet you that you mm-hmm. remember that person. And so uh, th- there was a... I don't know the name of the book, which is terrible to say, but there is a book out there and it's like how to be the most interesting person at a party. And I I know a lot of people have, have read those types of things. And basically you could be the most popular person at a party being an introvert. If you just ask guests about themselves, because the thing that people like to do the most is, is talk about themselves. And so like if you're in a setting at, at the host's house and you see a picture on the wall of wherever, and if you have something to ask them about, I mean, you could ask, you could say 20 words the whole night, but they were all questions and you'll, people will walk away and be like, man, that's the nicest guy I've ever met in my life. Yes. You what know? a great conversation. So, yeah. so that's, so that's always one of those things, but it's always part of it. You know, it's, it's. It's the where you got your shoes at, you know, on your feet on Bourbon Street. I mean, that's all part of an introduction, but it is something that, you know, the little scam artists do in, in New Orleans. But I guess so culturally and, and being from the South and South Louisiana specific, I think that is part of uh, just ingrained in our DNA to, to find a way to start a conversation really easy. It's a great point. I think there is something to be said for small talk. And even if it's just what a beautiful day we're having to where you at a base level establish something common like you're both experiencing this beautiful day if it's something positive then that generates what it says on your shirt right now positive vibes only i I think there's something to be said i I don't want that to go away like you mentioned the elevator somebody's going to be wearing airpods in the elevator it's exactly like that's that's a great point too you wouldn't do the charades thing where you Pull the you act as though you're pulling the AirPod out of your ear so that you can say to that person, "Beautiful day, huh?" Yeah, well, that's an awkward thing too. But so, where do you think small talk went away? Like, if you had to to try to pinpoint something or or a couple examples of where, as a society, we've been able to to not be good at small talk. Like, where did that start, or or what triggers that in your mind? Smartphones, of course. You think it's solely on the phone? Oh, a hundred percent. Yes, we've. We've given ourselves so much excuse not to have a conversation because of texting or even at the workplace using the instant messaging software that they use for internal communications. You always, almost always have an excuse not to talk to somebody and people usually don't want to talk to people and What's crazy to me about that is that even though you may say that almost always after you've had that discussion or that quick chat or the small talk, you're almost always glad that you had it. It's it's like it. It's like working out, right? Exactly. (laughs) Nobody leaves the gym pissed off. Nobody gets out of the elevator and says, I wish that we hadn't talked me and that other person. It almost always in the in the tiniest way is uplifting to someone to have had that chat even though if you were to ask them prior to hey would you want to talk to this person they would almost always say no but they enjoy it after the fact i think that's a, a truism you know at the gym we joined here in new orleans you show the app to a scanner when you walk in the person behind the desk doesn't even pick their head up and to me that 
is a lost opportunity for a hello. And I actually met my wife at the gym with her working behind the desk and taking your, there's a little thing on your, you keep it on your keys and she would scan it for you. And it's probably the fact that we were able to have an interaction in that split five or 10 seconds. Yeah, it was a forced interaction. It was, it was yes. a forced greeting. Yeah, just yes. to tell someone hi. You know? Absolutely. And dating back to our conversation that we had, uh, I mean, that's what I tried to instill in my son, mm-hmm. uh, of telling people good morning, telling people hi, making eye contact, like just having that brief interaction. Because, I mean, this happened yesterday. And I feel bad because it's almost like an gossipy type thing where my wife and I and, and our son, we went and eat lunch. And while we're eating lunch, I look over at the table and the table adjacent to us and there's a family of four. And one of the kids has a tablet mounted up with headphones covering their ears. And I'm not, you know, I'm not going to say I'm not judging them because I'm completely judging them. And I'm like, that kid right there. We'll never know how to have a conversation at the table with strangers or friends' parents or anything like that. I'm like, there was a time whenever like you go eat out with your friends. If you played sports or whatever, you just spent the night at your friend's house, and they take you to go eat pizza or something like that. And you're sitting there with their parents, and their parents ask you questions, and you have a conversation with adults. And this kid, 6 years old, 7 years old, 10 years old, doesn't matter because forever when they go eat out, it's going to be, oh, we bring the tablet and we put on the headphones, and we eat our meal while we watch whatever we're watching on YouTube or whatever it may be. And I'm like, man, like that's that one where I, I just want to shake them and be like, don't, don't take that opportunity away from having that little annoying conversation with your kid or, or provide the opportunity to correct them in public even, you know, which, which sounds kind of weird, but at the same time too, like learn how to behave at the table. Like don't silence them because if, if you really need that, that moment to go eat out, then find a sitter and then you and your spouse go eat out. Like, don't bring the kid and then plug them up to where they can't. Like, force them to talk to you. You know, like, we, we went and eat lunch. You know what we did? We played tic-tac-toe for, like, 30 minutes or 40 minutes because our food took forever to come because something happened in the kitchen. But aside from the point, but we had to keep a, a five-year-old, almost six-year-old, entertained for 45 minutes while we didn't have our food. And we didn't have a tablet. We didn't give him our phone. That's what we did. And he watched the game. You know, there's a game on the television. So he watched the game, and we talked about the game, and talked about the uniforms that the players are wearing, and the shot that he took, and whatever it may be. But it was just conversation that my son was forced to have. He had to find some talking point to entertain himself. Meanwhile, we had to do the same for him. So just all of that right there, and I see that kid sitting at that table, and I'm just like, wow, it would probably be easy to just put some headphones on him and just disengage with him for 45 minutes, and we just wait for our food and complain about how slow the service is. But instead, he was engaged. He was like, why is it taking so long? You know, And now he's, he's wondering why the waitress didn't bring our food. Well, why didn't this person? They brought their food. And just little things like that, I'm like, he's observing. And so like, I think that that's a basis of where small talk has gone away. It's a lack of observation as well. It's, it's not just putting headphones on them. It's not just putting the tablet. It's not just the phone. It's just that we're observing things that are directly in front of us, be it the smartphone or even the television. You know, we were watching the game, but we were still conversing about the game that we were watching. You know, I was talking to the person I was with. I was talking to my son. I was talking to my wife. So I think that a lot of it is just, just a lack of observation that people make just in general. Like we walk into a room and we didn't realize that there were three paintings or whenever I walked through the kitchen, I saw the Christmas card that I sent on the fridge. I'm like, oh, that's cool. They have our Christmas card, you know, up there that we sent them this past year. And so little observations like that, I think have just gone by the wayside where we expect the information that we need, knowing that it's at our fingertips, whether it be Google, whether it be a social media post or whatever it may be, that's gone. I mean, if, if you remove the phone from us, then you have to rely on your brain to make those observations, to, to recall the things that you saw, to, to engage in conversation. And 
that kind of stuff right there just makes me sad for for some kids who are going to be uh they're going to fall on the introvert um label they're going to fall on the uh, uh what's what's the popular term now for for people who incel is that yeah you know and 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 that's it so or or athletes um Simone Biles she went through it this past year and um mental health the yeah the mental health you know stigma and things like that not saying that it doesn't exist and you have to preface by everything by sympathizing with that one thing that you question to begin with which is so part of our society to begin with where you have to preface it by saying no I know mental health you know is an issue but at the same time too lack of conversation is an issue too in this world I mean, we don't have it like we used to. And I'm not that old, but I still grew up with the not having a cell phone at 10 years old. I grew up with not having social media until I got really like post-college whenever it became prevalent for us. And now it's there, but we still hang on to, I guess, our Southern roots recall that, that having a conversation as well as just not being that interested to ignore the person in front of me. It's very astute to recognize that, that people aren't as perceptive as they used to be, not only of their surroundings, but of themselves. People lack self-awareness, and I think 100% screens are to blame. Since I graduated from college, my time in the real world, I had something like 15 years before I married, and I made a lot of friends at the gym. And I've shared this many times. Of course, I met my wife at the gym, but when the guy I remember was showing me around at that gym, he was trying to sell me on the idea of becoming a member. And he said, there's a lot of quote unquote talent here. And I, I said, I can, I can tell. I said, I'm going to meet my wife here. And I, <laughs> I said it tongue in cheek, but I was pretty sure that probably was going to happen. I mean, I, I was there every day. That's and, a common interest point too as well. Yes. And I'm the type to talk to people and make friends. Like I said, I, I've made a lot of friends. I've made one friend here in 14 months of being a, a gym member. That's sad. Yes. That's really sad. And the only reason I think I made that friend is because he, he saw me as a threat because his wife talked <laughs> to me one day out of the blue. She thanked me for the view, like something really flirtatious, and, and he befriended me shortly thereafter. Well, there you go. That that could lead to a very good friendship because if he's observant, he's going to make sure nothing shady happens with his wife. So, so there you go. You might have found a really good friend in the end because it, you know, it's someone that pays attention to what's going on, and that's obviously what you try to do in life and and traveling and and doing all that you've done. You know that you take in those moments, and and you're not trying to make sure that you have the perfect uh, IG post or anything like that. You know, you're trying to to live in the in the whole moment, as cliche as it may be, but it's cliche for a reason because there's a lot of truth in it. And so, yeah, trying to live in the moment and, and be observant. And that guy right there was completely observant of the comment that his wife made. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, the gym thing too. Like, so that's one where I, we, my wife and I, and, and even even our son, like this morning, we went and to we do CrossFit. As sometimes it just feels weird to say that we do, you know, we do CrossFit, but it's it's a social point as well because it's a class setting, you know. And even though some places are like really rah 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 get that last lift in and all this other stuff. Ours is just so chill, you know, which is one of the reasons that, that we enjoy the gym that we go to. But at the same time, like where we're not from the area that we live in and we have a kid in school and trying to meet new people, there's just not a lot of time. So friends of 
or his friends' parents kind of become friends of ours, and then the only other place to kind of meet people is is the gym. I mean, you met your wife there, and we're just you know meeting new friends there as well, and it's a common interest. You know, it's not like we get around and, and talk about you know the CrossFit workout that we had last week or the other day, but it is a place where leading up to that workout you have a conversation while you're stretching and getting ready and then everybody struggles and it sucks together to get through the workout and then you finish it and then you have a conversation about what you're doing this weekend or what's going on in the community. And so I think like that right there, like even though it becomes, you know, a stigma, you remove that stigma of CrossFit and you just call it like you went to a workout class, whatever it may be. It it allows for an adult interaction with strangers where you're kind of looking to achieve a common goal, which would be like the workplace, but you don't always want to hang out with the people that you work with. And this is something that you're selecting to do to go to this gym and be a member. And so hopefully the people that you're there with are cool and, and you want to have a conversation with them. So I think that like, that's another thing where being able to engage in small talk, like, like I can, or, or have a conversation with someone or find some an interest that someone has, I can always revert back to that. If it's an awkward silence of, Hey man, you bought that new car, right? Man, how you like it? Is it nice? Ah, oh, man, that, that looks really nice, you know, and ask them questions about that. And then they'll just verbally dump everything to you. And, and then you start a whole new conversation. It, it's one of those things where it seems like it's so easy to have a conversation, but so many people are socially awkward that they don't even pick up on social cues to where I'm asking you a meaningless question to just have a conversation to, to get to know you. And yet it's more of the, why are you talking to me? And I think like friends from big cities get that. Like we hold the door open for people over here. And I had a friend who lived in Philly and this lady was about to go get the cop because she thought he was like, he was going to mug her (laughs) because he held the the door open for her at a grocery store. And he's just like, wow, like we we are not in South Louisiana anymore. And so, uh, yeah, that, that would, that would be tough to deal with. I mean, have you, Houston's the only big city that you've lived in. Yes. Like as far as that goes. Yes. Was it like that at all? I mean, you still get a little Southern ties and they have a lot of transplants because it's so big, but. One of the great things about Houston is that you can get the small town feel when your high school becomes a town, like everybody who went to Sci Falls, you're kind of like a community. And then you get the benefits of the big city. If you drive 20 minutes into downtown, you can see the Rockets or the Astros. So that's one of the things I really liked about Houston was Sci Falls was like a town. And then Sci Fair is a town and Sci Creek is a town, Langham Creek, etc. And then there's rivalries, of course, and you meet you make friends at the other school, which is kind of cool. But when I moved from the small town in Louisiana to Houston, it just seemed to me that whereas 90% of guys in Thibodeau, Louisiana, seemed reasonably cool, like a reasonably cool guy Mm -hmm. that could talk about LSU football if you had nothing else to talk about. In Houston, it was more like, 50% of guys were reasonably cool. And then the other half probably never played a sport and spent more time playing video games and just isolated. This is, this is my guess because I wasn't there from age zero to 13, but that it's just, it's just so easy to hide and be anonymous in a big city and in the small town, even those who l- completely lacked athleticism played soccer. Yeah, and so, 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 so soccer, 
You players aren't to. athletes is what you're trying to say, man. That's a bold statement. That's interesting. <laughs> no, I'm joking that. with you. Uh, I, could, I don't, I I don't really mean too. that. No, I don't really mean that. Uh, so, I mean, it's no different than a pitcher, right? <laughs> yeah, pitchers so, are non-athletes. So, but no, but okay, so that that uh, that whole idea right there of people falling into these, these you know, half of the guys were cool and then the other half, well, I'm not going to say they're not cool, but just not as outgoing and not necessarily know where to find that voice to to speak out. And man, did they find that voice to speak out with nowadays via Twitter, right? Like, I yes. mean, that's pretty much it. Like, that's, that's it. like that's it. Where can I go to have a conversation with someone that thinks exactly like me? But instead, it turns into where can I go to belittle people that think opposite of me? And then we just pile on because that's kind of what Twitter has become, you know, in, in that whole thing. So they found their group. But a lot of times those groups, no matter what side it is politically, it is you are on my side or you are on the other side. There is no conversation. It is the waiting to speak mentality that so many people have when it, whenever they don't know how to have any type of small talk. It is you talk. OK, now I'll talk. You give your opinion. I'm not really listening. That was my opinion. And man, that's that's kind of where we are at, you know, with social media where, you know, it's, it's my turn to talk. You listen and then let's just go gang up on everybody else. And so, I mean, I think all that stuff just kind of translates from people not knowing how to do one thing and then finding that voice with uh, Twitter fingers. That is such a good point because it's an opportunity for lower status people to, even if it's What do you mean briefly, by lower status? Well, you're not going to gain any status, which is important to both males and females throughout human history for mating purposes for for every purpose i guess getting work um being having friends things that provide fulfillment and joy in life um, so status in the sense of what do you bring to the table type thing like even from a friendship thing like i mean i I mean, I wouldn't really want to be friends with you if I didn't think that there was something to gain. And, and that gaining is having a meaningful conversation with someone who has experienced things and someone that I value their opinion. So if I didn't think that you had that, then, you know, like that. So like to me, like that's like the status part of it, you know, like not so much of of where you're at. But what do you bring to the table mm. for status? Not necess- I think it's I think I mean, I know whenever you said status, my initial thought was where do you rank, I mm-hmm. guess, in life, whether mm-hmm. it be financially, educationally, or whatever it may be. But sure. but I think really the, the status thing is is where do you rank in, in the in the scope of my life of what you can provide for me in, in a in a friendship. Mm. You know, like I have friends that we only do one thing with. And then I have friends that I only do other things with. And I have a friend like you that I have conversations like this with. I don't have a lot of friends that I have this conversation with. So, I mean, I look forward to this whenever you ask me to come back on because I'm like, yeah, I'm like, let's let's talk about things that I know your brain works in a, in a weird way and my brain works in a weird way. And, and we usually kind of find something to converse about. And, and some friends, their brain doesn't work in that kind of weird way. Yeah. And, and so, uh, so, yeah, so I don't know. I, I mean, status, I don't know, status is a weird word. I was thinking of status more in keeping with our online theme the top 20% of men gain access to the top 60% of women. And what that means for the bottom 80% of men is that it's very slim pickings. They, a lot of them, especially if you're in, let's say, the bottom 20% of men, you're an incel. And you spend all your time on Twitter 
probably not showing your face, but attacking the top 20% of men. And that is an opportunity for a low-status person to gain something on a higher-status person, to knock them down. And I do think that many people, probably almost half of people, would do harm to others' status if it helped to increase their status because there's so much at stake. Jobs, income, finding a suitable partner. So... I, we don't. Yeah, I was. I was thinking differently in in terms of status, and I think COVID exacerbated this problem because it gave lower status people an opportunity to EMF those who weren't wearing a mask, for example. It just gave it gave them an opportunity to have power over others, whereas in any other context in, in society, they wouldn't have had it. And so they briefly gain this status by, m- m- like I said, MFing somebody, like, put your mask on, you know, or whatever it is. Maybe well, it's well, being yeah. out. And- well, in the mask thing, like, that <laughs> that provided, I mean, weak people, I guess, um, a way to feel comfortable to, to stand up to others. You know, whether you want to call it standing up or not, I mean, if they firmly believe it, but at the Weak same time... could be synonymous with low status, right? Yeah, I believe so. Spineless. <laughs> yeah. Sneaky. Uh, yeah. yeah, just someone that you don't want to be friends with in the end. Right, and which would put them in the bottom 20% of men. What What woman would seek a partner who has no friends? True. So that's where I'm coming from so, in terms yeah, of status. Yeah, and, and bring a full circle, would want, and so they bring nothing to the table. So yeah, we're, we're there. We got there through different ways, but uh, yeah. but no, I, I I see what you're saying, and yeah, I completely agree. Even though I was thinking of in a different way, but but you know, you're, you're right on with that. That status being down low with nothing nothing to bring to the table as far as a friendship, and they have no friends and they have no status really. And there's something to be said for having a friend, but having no reason that you're friends with them. And it could be argued that that is true friendship when you have a friend and there's no reason for it. But really, I think that's surface level thinking that when you dig a little deeper, you realize, oh, this person provides value to me in this way. He thinks differently. He provides an intellectual spark that I wouldn't get elsewhere. It's just fun to get drunk with. That there you go. That That too. We all have that friend. And they're like, man, that is just the best friend to party with because life won't get them down when we're together. It's just going to happen. And and then we're going to wake up the next morning and be like, damn, what the (laughs) hell we do? Yeah. And then we're like, all right, man, I'll I'll see you again in three months because I don't think I could do that again right now. But no, but yeah, that that friend, they still provide something. Yes. There's a reason when you dig deeper. And me being in the self development space, either as a coach or speaker, I. I tell people that you want to develop yourself so that you can provide value to people. And in doing so, you will attract a higher caliber of individual. And I just spoke a few weeks ago to a group of mostly early 20s people and explained to them that a lot of the higher caliber of per- of individual that you're going to be friends with, hopefully that you meet later in life, let's say after age 30, a lot of them aren't around in your 20s because they're either maybe indirectly increasing their status, but they're trying to be an attorney or they're in residency or they're doing all these other things that 
they're not going to be at the bar at happy hour on Thursday or however it is that most people meet people. I've always had a problem with people who say, don't bother me at the gym. Like, don't try to make friends. I'm, I'm there to work out. Because that same person is saying, hey, I'm at work to, to make money. Like, I, it's a job. I'm not trying to make friends. Okay, where did the hell did you make friends? Yeah. Like, how are you this super duper individual that somehow attains all these friendships without talking to anybody anywhere that you go? But maybe they've held on to their high school friends and, and they're cliquish that way where they don't let anybody else in. I, I don't know. What what age do you think you stop making good friends? <laughs> Have I you made good friends? I don't think that can stop because, as you just said, you you've become friends with your kids' parents. Yeah, I mean, I have. I mean, I, I have. Or it's starting, right? So, I mean, I have probably like one really good friend that that we've made um, through our child. And basically it was because we were the dads that drop off for daycare <laughs> and we were a, a small group of dads that dropped off their kids at daycare and he had a little boy and I had a little boy and I'm like, Hey man, what's up? He wasn't from this area. I wasn't, fr- you know, I'm not from this area originally. So that friendship kind of blossomed and, and you know what, it, he was wearing an LSU shirt and I was wearing a Saints hat or, and small talk like that ensued. And, and you know, he's a salesman, go figure, you know, mm-hmm. he is an outside salesman, but man, it, it's hard to make new friends after 30. It is. And a lot of people don't want to. I mean, if you think about how much and and now that you're. It takes effort. Yeah. And and now that you're, you know, now that you're a dad, like just your, I mean, as cliche, whatever you want to call it. But if you think about your life as a tree and you got a ton of branches whenever you're, you know, 18 and then you turn 20 and then you turn 25 and all that stuff starts to go away. and, And those branches get trimmed back pretty far with anything that consumes your time. So making new friends tends to not be one of those things that you can spend a lot of time making. As as weird as it sounds, because it's it's so nice to to meet people and and to make new friends, but man, sometimes that work just doesn't seem like it's worth it for everybody because that's where we're at. Just you just don't make lifelong friends after thirty. It seems like, and whenever you do, it's usually someone awesome, and you're so glad that you did. I mean, our friendship has become a lot stronger in the last you know since what seven eight years ago than than what it, you know we passingly knew each other in the past and and then now we can have these conversations so no i would say that you and i have a friendship that grown since we were 30 but it's also because common interest of trimming those peripheral people with the lower branches and it got higher and i'm like i'd rather spend my time talking to bradley than you know the person that i talked to whenever i was you know 23 years old well one of the reasons i'm such a big proponent of living deliberately is because relationships are so important to the good life that I do think I'm I'm also a, a big advocate for journaling and I'll say that you should write down the people you meet and then collect them up this is when I'm giving advice in a talk I'll tell them my story of how I got to where I am and part of it was living deliberately to where I'm writing down the people that I meet I'm underlining their name in my in my journal and then at the end of the year on December 31st when I do my review of the year, it's easy to collect the names because they're underlined. And then I'm deliberate about who I want to develop relationships with. And I'll give you an example from the talk I gave just a couple of weeks ago. I met the head baseball coach at UL, and I had never met him before, but I had heard his name over the last 15 years quite a bit. And he and I hit it off to where we're texting afterwards. He's thanking me, and I'm thanking him. And and the next morning, he's sending me something that he thinks I would like by text that is how you develop a relationship. And then maybe you wish them a happy Thanksgiving. I know that my parents' best friend 
their the couple that was their best friend was my best friend's parents, the Bolellos and Thibodeau. Mm-hmm. And the reason that they became such good friends is because Brett and I were on the all-star team at age 8 and 9 and 10, 11, 12. And so they spent so much time together. And then when I was going over to spend the night at Brett's house, my parents would go over there too, and they would play cards, the four of them. But that's how they developed that friendship. And they didn't meet until they were probably 35. And so from 35 to 40, they became the best of friends. And so I kind of look forward to that. I, I don't think that there is an age... Um, because, hell, during my talk the other day, I said the day will come, the head coach at UL's name is Deggs, Matt Deggs. I said the day will come when I will say that I met Coach Deggs 17 years ago. And so if I'm deliberate about maintaining a relationship, and I didn't go deep into this, but if I want to build a relationship, you have to allow compounding to take root. And so that's going to take effort. But the way that compounding works is you put in a lot of effort up front and things happen very slowly and gradually. And this applies to so many aspects of life and then all at once. And so as it applies to money, it takes longer to get from zero to 100,000 than it takes to get from 600,000 to a million if you're saving and investing, just as an example. But I used the example in my talk of my friend Seth who invited me to speak. He and I have now known each other for 10 years. Well, when I met him, he sent me a handwritten note in the mail. And that's my thing. I love that. (laughs) And so that, of course, appealed to me. And so I instantly liked him. When we get together, we can't stop talking. You know, it's two hours like you and I. And so that's how relationships are built. And so the compound interest aspect of the relationship was how hard was it for him to get me to come speak? It wasn't hard at all because he's put the work in over time, where we both have, to where we've built this friendship and we want to spend more time together. So all he's got to do is text me and say, hey, will you come speak? Yes. But had we just met a year ago, it'd be like, eh, I don't know, maybe I'll blow him off now, but maybe if I'm free in the spring or if you pay me X amount of money, you know, whatever. Yeah. So. Yeah, man, I think you're a rare one, though, and I don't think you necessarily realize that. So, you know, just in the sense of, the journal thing and man that sounds great uh, most people don't do it you have to realize that as well it's easy to do it's even easier not to do exactly and and so i think that that's part of it where where you you're very you're you're calculated in a in a very good way and that calculated thing also is something that most people are not and I think it's it's a time management thing, and, and I'm sure you get into time management with with everything that you talk. Time, yeah, no you know, and, and it's and it's hard. And I mean, it's hard as it's hard as a parent. It's hard as you know, especially two parents who work forty plus hours a week, who have people that depend on them at work and things like that. And then you have a child, and that child is involved in activities, and then everything else. And then I mean, literally five a.m. I wake up at four twenty six, five days a week to either go run or go to the gym. Because I know that that hour, hour and a half may be the only time that is strictly mine. And I'm perfectly okay with that. But I do know that that may be the only time that is specifically mine. And it would be nice to to segment certain things. But it just, it doesn't work that way. Mm. You know, and, and so, I mean, even, like I said, it, it's, I don't even think it's an excuse. But, like, I don't journal like you do. I think that's great that you do. And I think that's awesome. And, and I would recommend that to anybody. And I should recommend that to myself and take your advice on it. 
and ain't gonna happen, bro. <laughs> you know, it's just kind of one of those things where, mm-hmm. and and it's it's not a it's not a knock on on anything really. I think it's just one of those things where, in the same way that I was saying, like you know, like you were able to make friendships, you know, and and one day you're gonna look back and say, 17 years ago you met him. That's great. I, I think as as I get older, I mean, I, it's it's not gonna be that. It's gonna be we met you know, 35 years ago because we're still friends from that time and it's just hard, man. And then your parents were lucky because I'm going to say this right now and you're going to realize this as well, that your parents made friends with the, with the Balelos. Balelos. Well, that's great. You know what that means? That those parents didn't suck because your parents had to vet through and hope that their son became cool with some parents with a kid that, that had parents that were cool. Because in the end, hearing it from my brother and my sister and them, they're like, man, you just, you, you, you got to hope that your kid just becomes friends with a kid that has some cool parents. <laughs> because if you're going to be forced to spend time with them, they're going to be some shitheads in there because no there always are. You know, I mean, you played on a team, you played college sports. I'm willing to bet that <laughs> there was a lot more guys that you would rather not be friends with than, than guys <laughs> that you still are friends with. Well, there are 12 kids on a basketball team, for example when you're playing youth league sports and 15 on a baseball team, let's say, you're liable to find one of the parents that you enjoy talking to in the stands, I would think. Hopefully. And that's kind of where it starts. And when you're forced to stay in a hotel beyond that, it force. well, you know, nowadays, if you had a hotel with the team, you could stay in your room and stare at your phone the whole time. Yeah. You wouldn't have to interact. But well, back you- then, you, there was... But I, even even now, too, all right, so you say that uh, you don't have to interact with the team. Man, go to a game. Go to a youth game right now. Guess what? You don't have to interact with the parents either. You know why? Mm. Because 90% of those games are observed through an iPhone. Mm. It's, it's recording the moment that your kid is at bat, your kid's at the free throw line, your kid's on offense if it's football, you know, whatever it may be, so many of those parents are not engaged in conversation with with anyone because that's how they watch their game. It's, I mean, go to a professional sporting event, a yeah. professional sporting event, and, and you're encouraged to post with a hashtag mm. at a Saints game. Yeah. You're encouraged to be on your phone at a Saints game. Interesting. And, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, once again, like dating back to that, you know, like back in my day type thing, even though that's not really where we're going, but that's how it was for your parents. Like they had to have that conversation because they had to amuse their time. And, and now you don't. Now, Bradley's up to bat. Boom, Bradley gets a double. Guess what? Mom got it on video. Let's upload it to Instagram. We got a reel. Oh, look how many people like it. Oh, look at this. We'll cross share it with Instagram and Twitter. And then, oh, look how many hits I have. And now we're just going to wait until we get through the lineup and Bradley's back up again. And we'll see what he does if we could post that one again. And man, my son had a hell of a game. Did the team win? I don't know. Bradley had a hell of a game. That's you in sports now, man. You know, that's that's real life. I'm I'm starting to see it, mm-hmm. you know, with, with my son and, and that's that's where it's headed. Like and, and if your is daughter incredible. is, is gonna play sports or you know, if you have more kids in the future, that's uh that's where it's I, I hate to I hate to be that guy, but dude, that's where it is headed. Just check it out. Go to a game. Well, maybe that's why I'm in favor of reverting to a more analog world because good luck with that (laughs) well what we were just talking about in keeping a journal most people i think if you told them to start keeping a journal would keep it on a computer they wouldn't handwrite it we already keep it don't you have an instagram feed yeah don't you log posts don't you caption it yeah 
That's a good point. I mean, that that is a journal. And it's a great journal, too. That is a positive. Yeah. Because if, if I'm talking to a friend that has no clue who you are, and I'm telling them what I'm doing tonight, and I'm like, oh, yeah, go check out its Instagram, and I give them just a little backstory of who you are and where you came from and things like that, and then I send them your profile, and then they scroll through that, they have an idea of who you are. That is the reason I eventually got on Facebook. My friend Byron, who didn't get on Facebook himself, encouraged me at lunch one day by saying, you're someday going to want a log of your life, and Facebook makes that easy. And I said, you're right, I'm going to get on. It took me a while. November of 2011 is when I finally got on Facebook. One of the reasons I am a proponent of, of reverting to this analog life that I mentioned, and what I mean by that is just... So you said that you should keep a journal. It's easy to do. It's easy not to do. It is a manual, handwritten thing. If you keep it by your bed and you do it before bed every night, then it would become part of your routine. I do think the height of wisdom is the ability to take your own advice. No, not fair point. <laughs> so what I explain to people in these talks that I give is that being successful is not complicated and I think the world would lead you to believe that it is but whatever successes that you're after I think can be achieved by living deliberately and I think that it starts with a journal because in that journal is where you can put everything including your goals your interactions uh, I talk about how we used to call it the the school of hard knocks but it's becoming a student of your own life, and this is the best way I know how to do it, by keeping a journal. And so I explained that you can be wildly successful by doing very basic, fundamental things that other people aren't willing to do. You know and something one basic that I think people don't know how to do these days? It seems very dumb. People don't know how to be bored. I love that you said that because in this talk, I also said two words that I hate to hear men especially say is I'm bored. I think that is ridiculous because if you want to live a bigger life is how I put it, then you're going to have to go to work on yourself. And so you can always improve your communication skills. What would advance your way in the world more than being able to better communicate. So if you're bored, hey, work on your communication skills. Yeah. If you're bored, study human nature. So but but bored in the sense of an actual activity to do. Now now mind you like to me, I, I can be bored and bored means that I'm sitting at home and I'm thinking. You know, and, and, and that's people all don't it do is. That. You know, and, and that's what I mean by like being bored. Like like people can't sit there and just think. And, and and have conversations and and this the whole premise of our, of our conversation of, of how we go from topic to topic and things like that and how I may send you a random text about something that came from a bored moment so to speak of me having this random thought being by myself and I'm like kind of want to know what Bradley would think about that and so I'll send you a text but that comes from being bored you know so yeah mind you like yes you could do something to improve yourself but that's what I mean by being bored like just kind of living in your own thoughts without having some type of stimulation that comes from the outside. Like, people don't know how to do that. I don't believe people know how to do that, at least. That's correct. I agree with that. People 
distract themselves from their own thoughts. They're, they're scared of their own thoughts, usually. And it's because they've accumulated memories. They have a lot of regrets. And anxiety and depression are at all-time highs, probably. And I believe it stems from what you're talking about. Whereas you do something productive with your idle time, they're going to do something that distracts them. And you may not even feel like it's productive, but thinking for most people is not a joyous occasion. It's, it's painful. <laughs> Sad to say, right? But people don't, don't find any pleasure in thinking like you do. And for you to then, if you have a thought and then take action on that thought to write it down... That's more effort than 90% of people are going to put forth. And these are the sorts of things that raise your status, by the way. I mean, how many people are going to hear your voice, to see, hear what you have to say right now? That raises your status because people care what you think. And the reason is because you've put thought into it. And so it's like, wow, he's, he's put some thought into that. Well, what were you doing while he was thinking about that? Well, you distracted yourself unfortunately. Um, so then you maintain a lower status. Um, Interesting that we tied that back to status, but um, well, I mean it's kind of kind of the theme, right? Just you know, if if we're going to venture in to talk about, you know, things of social media and and covid related stuff and I mean everything has become, you know, everything is is a status. I mean, like we popularity is currency, right? Is it? What do you mean by that? So popularity is currency, meaning that um, all these things that you would do to make yourself, to make your status better in this world, whether, you know, financially, uh, you know, through work, whatever it, it may be, you know, just being, you know, uh, helping people, whatever it may be. Right. But if you're popular and, and people observe what you're doing, that allows you to have so many doors open. So an influencer, right. Influencer lifestyle. Like it is such a big deal for people to be an influencer and one way or another, whether it be through cooking, whether it be through traveling, whether it be through modeling, anything, fitness, there are so many people that consider themselves influencers. And by doing so and having influence and popularity, it allows these people to do things that they would not normally do without having to necessarily work hard to achieve that. Mm. Right. So, so I mean, the, the richest people in the world got theirs through a grind and the influencer lifestyle that that has created so much popularity but whether it be short term or not but the kardashians and, and and things of that nature where winning a reality tv show you know winning a singing competition you the grind of the artist is still there i mean it's still really there but we're only shown the person who eight weeks ago people barely knew and now they're signing a record deal. Mm. And, and so like that popularity has created this sense of currency for them. It has elevated their status. And the rich get richer in this regard. Yeah. And, and, and so like that's what I think about popularity as currency. And, and popularity, even not on the scale of, of television and, and all that, popularity within, within a community. Right. So, I mean, people put their roots down in a community and it may be the place that they were born, but whatever it may be, if you have the right last name. Right. And then and then you take the right job or you take over your family's business or whatever it may be. 
that right there is a sense of popularity in the community. People know you. People want to know you, especially if you're successful and a nice guy. It's not all negative, but that is still that allows you to take advantage of other things in a positive way or a negative way. You know, so taking advantage isn't, I mean, we, we know that it isn't always a negative thing to take advantage of a situation. I mean, you can help other people, whatever it may be. You're optimizing. Sure. Yeah. And, and so I think like that's what it is, that, that the sense in the, the popularity part of it is just, it's achieved through so many different ways now, mm. opposed to where it was done through only hard work to have people know you, whether it be an athlete, whether it be a business owner. But now if you have the right abs and the right hashtag, you can have 30,000 followers and someone willing to pay you to represent their brand. You may have seen me write this before, but I've said that God may have made Hollywood celebrities a thing just to prove to us that fame and fortune don't make for a happy life. We're all celebrities now when we can post something and everyone we know can see it or... Anyone can go viral nowadays, which is pretty crazy. The guy I mentioned earlier, after a 2018 Super Regional game, he was coaching Sam Houston State. They were playing Florida State. They lost 18 to nothing. He had a press conference. It was seen by 50 million people. He hurried and wrote a book. He said he was, his heart was nudged by God to write a book shortly thereafter the press conference. A lot has happened since you were last here. So Donald Trump was... I heard he lost. From, he, yes, he lost the election, and he has since been deplatformed. Yes. What do you make of his being banned from Twitter and Facebook? We're, we're being censored from what half the population considers something that is considers something that we don't need, right? Because half the people in this country thought he was the right guy. The other half didn't. The other half happens to control those media outlets and those social media outlets and things like that and said his word does not need to be there. That's scary. So, I mean, deplatforming the former president of the United States, I don't see how it can be good from anywhere. I, I wasn't a fan of his. I'm still not a fan of his. But his voice shouldn't be silenced, just like your voice shouldn't be silenced and my voice shouldn't be silenced. And that's kind of what we pride ourselves on as Americans and trying to make everybody like us, you know, uh, like us in the sense of make them similar to us, you know, and obviously they don't like us as, as a country, you know, but, but at the same time too, I mean, we, we let them know why we're so good and that we took the, the leader of the free world, the most powerful country and all this other thing and, and told him, nope, we don't want to hear what you have to say. I don't know how anybody could think that's a good idea. I don't know that the shift that happened from uh, censorship being, something that one side did it was the conservatives you know it was uh it was a liberal idea uh, yeah but but it was the conservatives the who, lack of censorship who took um yeah yeah it was the conservatives who put the parental advisory on cds you know so you and i couldn't buy the master pcd whenever you know no limit dropped a new album back in the day you know unless we had our parents buy it for us kind of thing mm-hmm. and so shout out master p <laughs> and so uh and and then and then it shifted it shifted to the liberals who were fighting for the, you know the hippie movement of of get out there and talk and and let your voice be heard to now shut up we don't need to hear that because it's not the right thing and will it do you think the pendulum will ever go back i mean it it has throughout time right i mean it it flipped once why wouldn't it flip again but what is going to make it flip back to the other side to where the the conservative christian values were the thing that people tried to um 
try to live by. They try to hold you to the standard of, of the church. The church was, was the, was the right thing to do. And now it, it seems that political correctness, woke, wokeness is the new religion. You're not following the guidelines of the woke culture. Therefore, you're not, you're not playing by the right rules. You didn't follow God's rules back in the day. You didn't live the right Christian lifestyle. So you're a bad person. And there's some middle ground that it seemed like we completely skipped somewhere of the church and the basis of the church being a good foundation to it being a horrible thing. And you should only be on this woke side. I don't know where the hell it skipped, but it went from one extreme to the other. Yes, the wokeness is terrible and it's spreading around the world, I'm afraid. I know the Biden administration recently advocated for like gay pride events in Ukraine and they're very strong Christian orthodoxy in Ukraine. And so what that does is it gives Russia an opportunity to come in and play savior. Hey, I'm going to preserve these traditions for you. And sure enough, two or three days ago, Putin was accused of staging a coup in Ukraine. And if you're going to attack us or if you're going to try to claim more territory in the world, now would be the time to do it when we're at our weakest and we're at our max wokeness, which is we're the world is better off when America is promoting liberal ideas, which it's a tough word to use now yeah, because is. in what context do you mean? Well, I mean in promoting free speech, which Facebook is the new town square. That is where, or, or Twitter, or social media in general, everybody is looking at this stuff every day. I'm generalizing, of course, there are exceptions, but shutting down someone from speaking in that public square is a huge, huge deal. And I think, of course, I mean, if history shows us anything, demonstrates anything, it's that it, you know, the, the old adage of history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. History shows us that, yes, of course, those who are in favor of deplatforming, of, of shutting out people's voices, of course, it's going to be them who are shut out eventually. That's the history of the world, I think. So, yeah, the pendulum is going to swing back. And What's... It's, it's those, I'm afraid, who are in favor of cancel culture who are going to be canceled. It's, it's like, do you remember the, the spy who, the KGB agent who spoke about... Yuri Bizmenov. Yes. Yeah, it was like 1984 video. Yes. Yeah, like if you haven't seen that video, take 13 minutes out of your life, go watch that video on YouTube where this guy 30 years ago, 35 years ago, started speaking about, he used like real words. He, re, he used words like uh, social justice, I, I believe. Like those exact words. We did not talk about social justice warriors, you know, like that long ago. And this guy was talking about it in the 80s. And, and this, this slow, just how patient they were and how Russia just went through this whole thing of it's not this forceful takeover. It's a manipulation. And I, I think that... That is, without a doubt, one of the biggest issues that go on here in the United States is that, like, we're such a young country, right? Like, you've traveled the world. You've been through places that, you know, buildings have been around forever, way before the United States was even a thought. And these places that exist, no patience. 
And over here, we've like just fast forwarded through everything to get to where we are now. And we have no patience. We have even, you know, our president's terms are, are limited and that's a great thing. But these countries that were, you know, had rulers that were there for, for years upon years, decades and families that ruled for centuries, they know the long game. And, and Russia knows the long game. China. Knows China the knows long the game. long game more than anybody. Man, there's, there's studies of, of China placing people on the West Coast into the tech companies. They're born into it. Your child is going to study this. They are going to go to work in California. They are going to be in Silicon Valley, and they are going to report back to us. Some of those people are not smart enough to report back, and they continue to make millions because they're super smart at what they do, and they develop information and things like that meanwhile working for the chinese government like this is like these types of things that i've read and listened to and things like that like that blows my mind but i'm like it's so typical like that's why china being communist rule but yet still operates in a in a place where they make tons of money you know like so many other communist countries just fall because they don't know what they're doing with the money china continues to thrive and they reinvest in their resources. And those resources, I mean, it's so weird to say, but are like spies that they place throughout corporate America to give ideas. I mean, every single thing that is made here is made in China. And we consume that stuff too. And so why would China stop making things to sell to us with the things? It's not always evil, but it's just everything. I mean, it, it's just, it's little things. It's it's making the phone that we all use. I mean, yep, yeah, they can do that cheaper, more efficient. They'll use child labor and... We look the other way and we want to sound like we're so much better than that. But in the end, I mean, we all buy the phone. We all buy the things. We all look for the cheapest possible way to get it without, you know, whatever that may be. And, yeah, so, yeah, these countries play the long game. We don't play the long game here. Did you see where the WHO skipped over G for the variant that was going to come next? So they go beta, delta, whatever with these variants. Right. And we were coming up on G, XI for a variant. And the WHO didn't want to name it after the president of the CCP. And so they skipped over the letter to name it Omicron or whatever this latest South African variant is. That's a big deal that our our institutions show such deference to these communist leaders. Xi is going to be in office probably our entire lives or at least his entire life. He's older than us, but. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and that's the thing too. So going back to like, even like, you know, the, the wokeness that, that we were surrounded by and professional athletes and, uh, and LeBron, right. So like the whole LeBron is, is very outspoken and that's great. I, I think he, he wants to be educated on the things that are going around and he tries to get out his opinion and he has a platform to use and he does try to use it, whether or not you agree with it, whatever, that doesn't really matter, but he is voicing his opinions that he believes in. And that's great because that's that's kind of what makes us us. Right. But then the China stuff happens and like we don't we don't talk bad about China in the NBA. And that stuff is just ignored. And it's just it, and it's throughout corporate America. But it's just like that was that that one big thing where the athletes have all these opinions on social social issues. But yet China is one of the biggest consumers of of the NBA. And, and we can't we can't mess that up. And actors and actresses who go to China and film these commercials and get paid the same amount that they get paid to do a movie, Hollywood doesn't talk about that, you know. But let's make sure that you know the former president is not allowed to tweet anymore because that's that's going to ruin the that's going to ruin the world. Right. The Taliban is tweeting. They have a Twitter account. The so. head of the Taliban, but not 
the former president. That, of that's the another States. example too of the long game. Like the whole, you know, the the removal of the U.S. troops from there, right? Which was just it was a weird moment for me because I was I was confused because throughout the whole war of just everything, it was you know we don't need to be there, right? Or let those people deal with themselves. Like we are not Middle East sympathizers down here in the South for sure. Like, I don't care what anybody says. Like, we are not Middle East sympathizers. But yet, because of the way it was done, we're militaristic sympathizers. So we were mad that the military was pulled out in the way that they were. I say we as in the, the opinion of certain conservatives. I don't mean we as in myself, actually. But the people were, were up in arms about that and completely mad about the way that was done. And it's not right to the military and everything else. But yet, we're fighting a war that's not ours, and they bitched about that. We pulled the troops out. We bitch about that because the troops were pulled out under Biden's administration and we don't like him. And, and, and I get that, but it's just there's no consistency, which is not surprising, but there's just no consistency in politics. There, there's none from which way or another. It, it, and, and the Taliban knew that it took 20 years, 20 years to get back into power. That's not a long time whenever you live in like prehistoric times over there. I mean, they're in the Stone Age. They don't care. You know, they were going to wait it out. They're talking about generations that will wait this out. People will die off, but the movement of what the Taliban is is something that is very strong in those people. Evil it may be, but it's still very strong. And so that patience that they knew they had to wait out 20, it only took 20 years and six hours for them to have their country back and, and rule people. And, the, and, and people wonder, why, why didn't they fight? Why didn't the Afghanis fight for it? Because, man, they're more worried about getting food for their family than having to fight the Taliban. And so they live with them. They'd rather not live with them, but they would live with them. Same thing happened in Vietnam, right? I mean, they just had to wait us out. And, and that's what happened. So, yeah, I mean, America, we, we don't, we want to show the world how they should live. But in the end, we just can go in there and just, just fuck shit up man we, we, we can blow stuff up with the best of them but whenever it comes down to like actually showing people how to run stuff i mean i don't think we're that efficient at it i don't know if, if, you, if you agree with that i mean it was kind of a little rant that i went on right there well, but I, but those are thoughts that i've had yeah more than once. they're great thoughts i could i could pick some of them out and and like the lebron thing i think china exposed the hardcore leftists which lebron steve kerr i would I would probably label them as hardcore leftists. They believe that they're the most compassionate people in the world, not just the best athlete, but he's more compassionate than you. And that's proven untrue when you realize that they're committing a genocide. You're in a situation where it threatens your business, and so you're unable to speak up. It just exposes you as a hypocrite. But part of being a hardcore leftist is not to concern yourself with being a hypocrite. It, that's that's just kind of part of the deal. Like you don't have to keep your word or be consistent in your views. That's that's not part of the leftist worldview. It's more of a I want to think highly of myself. Let me do that. And it's interesting that LeBron coming out with his politics is because I probably because I was such a Jordan fan and I love the way he handled himself. But he didn't. But Jordan didn't give statements. He didn't speak out. Right, which I which I would prefer because I can't believe that the racism stuff is now in sports. 
as someone who played sports, you know that racism doesn't exist in sports but, at all. But it does from the consumer of the sports, and, and that makes up a big deal of it. I mean, I think, mm. I, I don't know. I, I mean, I understand what you're saying, that it seems like the Jordan era and, and him not speaking out, and, and you prefer that, mm-hmm. as much as I would prefer not to necessarily hear everything, I, I don't have a problem with it. I mean, I'm not saying that like I'm encouraging and I really want to know what Draymond Green thinks, but at the same time, too, why not? But how could you be in favor of it after what we just? I mean, it doesn't. Well, no, 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 no. But, 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 because he took the wrong opinion, right? Like, because he he didn't stand up for it. I mean, I guess it it sounds contradictory. So you want him to be it, it sounds it sounds contradictory, but because we know it's wrong that that he refused to acknowledge the China stuff, right? But yet he he points out everything that happened from 2020 throughout everything, right? The the Trayvon Martin and then the NBA players reacted to that, and and that's perfectly fine. And like I'm okay with the social issues that they speak out on. I guess it sucks that they have no backbone when it comes to the worldview part of it. Yeah, I'm surprised that you would want politics to permeate all aspects of life, including sports. Well, wasn't it better? When politics wasn't conflated with our sports? I mean, I don't really know, right? Because whenever I was 12 years old, you know, and I, and I had a poster of someone on my wall, I, I didn't, didn't, I didn't have to know yeah. what their politics were. See, I don't think they shared them, though. It, it's a different time where they, politics is religion. They weren't expected to, you know. Oh, and you think they're expected to now? I think they are. They, see, they tried to... to poke at Jordan and get him to share his political views, and he wouldn't do it. But, but nowadays... At the, at the same time, too, Jordan decides to go out there and, and express himself completely right now, right? Doesn't he have way more to lose than to gain if people want to start boycotting the Jumpman logo, man? Like, it's everywhere, right? It's on Michigan's football uniforms today. I, yeah. I was pointing that out. That's incredible. You know, so, 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 I mean, transcends he has sports so much football more to lose. Uniforms. So, I mean, for him, where's where's his value in speaking out? You know, he, he didn't have to whenever he played. At the same time, too, Jordan never missed a shot. I don't know if you realize that because he didn't live in the, he didn't play in the Twitter era, right? I mean, mm. LeBron is one of the first athletes to be judged on possession by possession. You know, even Kobe got to come into the league and not be great right away. And we love Kobe. I love I'm a Kobe guy. I love Kobe. You know, I can't throw a piece of trash in the garbage without saying Kobe, you know, like that. That's it. But the athletes speaking out, they can have bad ideas in the same way that Trump is banned from social media. If he has bad ideas, die, man. That's why they're bad ideas. So let them have them. Hmm. let them have them let the athletes have a bad idea if it's a bad idea people will ignore it if trump has a bad idea people will half the people think he has bad ideas proven right Mm -hmm. so why not continue to let him have those bad ideas let him get further away and more people may not believe him or may not put faith in his word Mm -hmm. if it's a bad idea i I mean let stop telling me how smart i have to be and let me just kind of evolve from that you know like let me let me get there you know like that's kind of what we've done you know as a society in general we let people get there like you let you let you're gonna let your daughter make mistakes mm-hmm. you're gonna she's gonna be messing with something whatever it may be you know a, a, a cup right a cup with milk in it you don't want her to spill the milk stop don't do that you're gonna spill the milk stop don't do that you're gonna pay attention 
eventually you're going to stop. You're going to let it spill the milk. And then she's going to get in trouble and say, stop doing that. It's a bad idea to whatever, roll the ball on the table when you have a glass of milk on the table. And and that's kind of, I mean, to, to break it down, something that's simple, if it's a bad idea, dude, it's going to die. Yeah. So, so let them speak. I mean, shut up and dribble, right? That, I mean, that's that whole thing. I hated it. I hated it. I hated it whenever they would say that because the politicians want to tell the athletes to shut up. Why? Like, why can't the athletes tell the politicians to shut up? They're smarter than us. Well, they were voted to speak on our behalf, whereas... But we all know that's not true because it's party lines, right? I mean, they don't speak on the behalf of, of, of all the people. They speak on the behalf of the lines in which they were Their constituents, those who voted them in. Yeah, I see. I can see what you're saying there. But once you've been proven a phony, we no longer want to hear you speak. That's, that's where I'm coming from. So if LeBron wants to build schools for kids and things like that, I, I love that. I want him to use his platform to better the world. But when you've put yourself out as being someone who cares about people and humanity, but then you get exposed when a country is committing genocide and you're afraid to speak out because it's going to hurt your bottom line, that to me, you've been exposed as a fraud. I no longer want to hear your opinion. No, and I totally respect that. I mean, and, and LeBron's opinion should die, maybe. Like, I, I'm not saying that he should stop giving it. I'm just saying that should die, but not forcibly. You're you're saying you wouldn't want to quote unquote deplatform him. No, you're just exactly. That just just let him continue going to bury himself. Be spoken into the abyss. Yes. nobody will follow him. For example, yes, quote, you're just going to sound like a crazy person talking if you just keep saying things and getting it wrong, so and then you, we just don't have to put value in your opinion. Yeah. So, is it important that people take pride in their country? Do you think? I think it is, and I think it isn't. <laughs> I think the over-patriotism could be a bad thing. I think we've seen that. I mean, I, I think a lot of people hate our country that live here. And I don't necessarily know if it's genuine, but I think that they feel like they can rack up some, some points with, with people who tend to think their way if they badmouth the country, if, mm. if we're not there yet. But at the same time, patriotism can be a negative thing. How about that? Patriotism can be a negative thing whenever it's over-patriotic, whenever it's failing to see the wrong in which we do. Just mm. not admitting that we messed up. So it's a lack of self-awareness combined with patriotism that you exactly. don't like. You know, I, I think, like, that's part of it. Like, the, I mean, playing the, the Afghanistan thing of, of that whole situation where people wanted to, you know, cry for, we didn't do right by the troops and things like that, but yet we got them out. I don't know where... We were supposed to, to, I don't know where the line was supposed to be drawn on us doing the right thing or not doing the right thing. Trump was planning to have the troops out by a certain time. That didn't happen. Biden rushed it. He can't admit that he's wrong. Why? I don't know. And like that all right there kind of gets it. Like, so now like the, the hardcore patriots have to hate him even more. Mm. And I don't know when patriot became a right wing term, but now you're a patriot if you're right winged, but yet you can't be a patriot if you're. Liberal? Is is that right? I mean, I, I can't be wrong. Like, is the, isn't that the way you see it? Is that the way it's it's out there now? Well, Obama considered himself a citizen of the world, and his IRS, the IRS under his tutelage, targeted, quote-unquote, organizations that had the name Patriot in it, I believe. I believe that was one of the terms that was flagged so if you wanted tax-exempt status, 
the IRS under Obama, that's a problem, <laughs> right? <laughs> like you you don't want the IRS after you. And if you have a president whose director, I don't even remember her name, but she wasn't forced to resign. It's kind of like the Afghanistan thing. Like nobody's forced to resign. Nobody's asked to resign. It's just you don't admit that a mistake was made. You just carry on. But if I had to, if I had to guess, that's kind of where that, where that started, that patriots are right-wingers because groups were forming after Obama was sworn into office that were Tea Partiers or whatever, and they, of course, wanted to form their own super PACs or just groups to lobby on behalf of whatever causes they supported, and they were flagged by the IRS so that there were delays in forming their groups or whatever. So, yeah, I think that's kind of where that started, but I could be wrong, and this would have been, what, 13 years ago now, 2008, so. Well, if you're wrong, the good thing is people will point it out so that works yeah. out thank so. you thank you listeners do you so. think the world has drastically changed since march of 2020 drastically yes uh drastically yes <laughs> drastically yes <laughs> yes it, it, it has it, it's so crazy because we were having a conversation i mean quite a few times i've said i'm like man i'm like you know what sometimes i miss like once we realized we, we aren't gonna die is that man i miss like lockdown sometimes <laughs> just in general of like the, that super easy life of kind of waking up doing your thing and then Sometimes the lockdown thing wasn't wasn't all bad. It seems like people were a little bit nicer. I, I think whenever it first started, but uh, but yeah, the the world's changed just from from having family that lives overseas, and they're going through like a possible like third or fourth lockdown, seeing friends that live in the Northeast, and the mask issue, and people still not knowing how to react to it over there, and even though so much information has been made available to us about what we have to do, don't have to do, can do, should do. And yet people still want to hold on to certain, certain ideas, uh, down here, COVID doesn't really exist. It seems like for the most part in the way that we operate our day-to-day lives and the numbers keep falling and Australia is in a military state. I have friends that's supposed to actually friends from the gym that are supposed to leave to go to Italy in a couple of weeks. And they're knocking on the door of another lockdown in Italy as much as we get wrong here and as much as it's so divided with, with COVID and it's still to this day, it's still divided so much on the, on the opinions of it. We're doing something right. It seems that way. And, and yet the rest of the world who is under, I mean, a, a lot of authoritarian type governments, right. is not completely elected. There's still a lot of old guard there that controls this stuff and their numbers are sky high. So I don't know if, if are we ignoring it or we doing that much better are we that much better than everybody else? Hmm. Like those are, I mean, those are just, you know, questions that really can't be answered. Hmm. But to say that the world has changed, it, it has. It's changed for so many people and there's no telling when it's going to get back. I mean, we thought we were headed down the, the way of getting things back. And, and over here we are and thankful for that. But in these other places around the world, no, like I, I don't know what their end game is. Political correctness, you believe, is a bullshit term. You've told me that. Why Why do you say that? Because it is, right? It, it's not anything correct about it. <laughs> the, the I Id- believe the term to be synonymous with dishonesty. Well, it's dishonesty. Uh, it's disingenuous. Yeah. It, it has no merit. 
it is giving the answer that you know is the right answer. It's mm. it's trying to be profound in every single thing that you say. It, <laughs> it it goes into so many things that make podcasts suck. Whenever you have like not you, but podcasts that I you know that I'll listen to, and that person has a guest on, and they literally every single thing they say has to be profound. Mm. This this great point, man. Sometimes you just say shit off the top of your head and it, and it kind of goes by the wayside and, and it's, it's a lost thought and it, it can't be well, you know, well tracked and well scripted, but you, but you try to get there. You, you have a thought process and it seems like political correctness is just like, what can I say that make sure, I mean, from a media standpoint, what can I say to make sure I don't get canceled, you know, cause that the news and everything else. So I, I don't think when people say political correctness, all it is is just like, I can give you the politically correct answer every single time, no matter what. It's just an answer. It doesn't mean it's right or wrong. I can't believe that people genuinely believe some of the things they say. They just know that it's the easiest answer to possibly give. Yeah, their lives and and identities are tied up in being politically correct, which I believe is dishonest. But they're walking around being dishonest all the time and don't, don't even realize it. And I've said this before, but once you get out of the corporate world, you realize... HR departments, for example, just it's constant dishonesty. You, they're not telling people the truth. And it's why I'm a, such a big fan of more people becoming financially independent. That's why I coach it. I want more people to be able to speak their minds and to tell the truth without having to worry about losing their job. And that's one of the things that financial independence allows for. And we need more of that. We need more men with the, with the masculine capacity to lead. And in order to lead, you have to be able to tell those who follow you, you have to be able to tell them the truth. And you have to not care what they think of you when you share the truth. And that's largely a societal problem right now, I believe, is, is all the dishonesty. And, and that's the slide into authoritarianism that people are scared of or or even the slide into communism that people are scared of because you are being a useful idiot you are helping to perpetuate the lie when you don't speak up when you know that something being said is untrue you you are being a useful idiot to those who would seek power over you who would have you subordinate yourself to them you're helping them you're aiding them without realizing it by not speaking your mind, by not being truthful. So don't allow the lie to continue. You have to speak up. And what if you're wrong? I mean, not saying that you shouldn't speak up, but I mean, the, the truthful, like being truthful to yourself and speaking your opinion, because just because you think it's truthful doesn't mean that you're right. Okay, but there is a segment of society, for example, that will wield the word racist to shut you up and so can you have an opinion that differs with conventional thought conventional thinking or what i mean by conventional is politically correct dishonest if you have an opinion that differs from your average hr department can you speak it and not be concerned if someone believes that you're racist we were watching the Ahmad Arbery 2020 special last night, and after each segment, when there was a commercial, we would have a family discussion about it. It, it got very interesting because half of us believed one thing and the other half believed another. But one of the 
one of the questions that was asked is, well, what if you were walking in a neighborhood or jogging in a, in a neighborhood that you didn't live in and some guys in a truck sped up behind you and tried to stop you? Wouldn't you keep running? And what's crazy is that that exact thing happened to me like six months ago. We were staying in an Airbnb in Houston, and this was at the I-10 Wirt Road exit. I believe they're zoned to Memorial High School. It's a pretty ritzy area, but we were staying in one of the old apartments. And I went for a walk like at 11 p.m. and went into the nice neighborhood that was adjacent to these apartments. And I must have been in the neighborhood for like 20 minutes, and I was just walking up and down the streets. And, dude, there was a truck that it was more of a suburban, a black one with tinted, very tinted windows, appeared to be like undercover cops. It was two guys. And they sped up and they flashed their lights up at me. I mean, scared the shit out of me. And they were like, hey, what are you doing here? And I said, oh, my wife and I are staying in an Airbnb at the front of the neighborhood where that apartment complex is. I said, I'm actually headed there now. And I told my family that if I were black, I would believe that they stopped me because I was black. But also, if I had been inside a home that was under construction, I would have had a guilty conscience and maybe not been as forthcoming with where I had been. So there's some nuance there that I thought needed to be discussed. That's not to say that I'm not in favor of a guilty verdict. I'm not, I'm not opining on that, mm-hmm. but just, it was interesting that I was able to share that I had had that exact experience. And of course, I believe that a lot of people would have thought if they weren't white, that it was because they weren't white and they were walking in that neighborhood that that was the reason they were stopped. And I'm telling you that I've had a lot of instances where I was stopped and it happens regardless of your skin color. If you're, if, if people in the neighborhood don't recognize you and you're walking up and down their streets or you're running full speed, whatever it is, they're going to call the cops and say, hey, we don't recognize this guy as being one of us. Like, so you're not he wrong, doesn't live here. <laughs> right? You're, you're definitely not wrong. Well, I can't um, be wrong about that. I'm telling them no, that's no, no, exactly no, no, what no. happened. In the sense of, um, of what you think would happen, that you know, if, whether you were white or black, you would be stopped, right? Because something didn't look right compared to the rest of the neighborhood, meaning someone who doesn't belong there. Right. And those guys were protecting the people that live in that community. Precisely. The difference lies, and and I believe this, is that it's not that you were stopped. It's what happens after you're stopped. Right. And that's the issue that most black males tend to deal with. Right. It's the incident that happens afterwards. Right. It's the way that they are stopped. It's the way they're spoke to. It's the way you're supposed to engage in that situation. And that's the part where you and I will never know what it's like. Mm. And having a convenience store in a low-income area and having that, that area is, uh, I want to say it's close to 92% minority, a lot, of, a lot of customers come to the store and they are black. And there is one thing that I am told, I've been told this multiple times, is that, man, you know why we like coming in your store? Why? Because you don't care. And what they mean by that is you don't care. You don't follow me around. I don't feel like I'm being watched. I've been coming in this store with my mom since I was 12 years old, and now he's 22, and he still feels the same way. 
hey, boss, man, what's up? And that's what I get in real conversations with these people because they are my customers. And, and, and I interact with them, and I want to know about them, and, like, that's the big difference, man. That's that thing that you and I will never understand, and, and I'm not going to pretend to understand it, but there is a difference of you feel eyes on you, and it feel different. And I can't say that he's wrong with that. Mm. So I think that that's a, a big part. And I'm not calling it white privilege because that's such a bad term, but there is something to be said of the way that, we interact. And I think a lot of that has to do also with, uh, with police officers in general, where so many times police officers back in the day, you were a police officer in the same town that you grew up in. Like that's where you were. Now guys don't want to be there. So if you grew up in a certain area, I mean, the cop went to high school with your dad and your aunts and your uncles and everybody else. And he knew who you were and, and that's it. But now you have police officers that aren't from the area that patrol the area and the police have become so militaristic in the way they dress. It's not polyester pants. It's cargo pants. It's not just a, you know, a, a pistol strapped to their side. It's one strapped to their leg as well. It's having handrails on the side of the SUV so they can come down the street doing 100 miles an hour and, and have to go jump in to do a bust. I think those types of things can look intimidating. Mm. And even though we want a Blue Lives Matter type thing, I think there is a certain point or a certain part of, of police officers and things like that, that it gets lost. You have a lot of good cops out there, obviously. You only hear about the bad ones and, you know, it's no different than anything else. It's you have a, a class full of great students, but you're only going to hear about the one that causes all the trouble. And I think that that kind of happens with, with police officers. So that's a narrative that gets pushed. But if we went into a police state right now, the police officers could patrol this area. And you couldn't tell the difference between them or military. Mm. That could be intimidating. I mean, I think it can be. I mean, right? I mean, isn't that what uh, what's going on right now with with Australia, where it's you know under a complete you know military state right now? It's a police state, and mm. uh, and and citizens are scared. They can't arm themselves. At least over here, we can still arm ourselves. Do you ever feel compelled to have a conversation with the minority customers that you have? and offer them advice as to how to handle an interaction with police? Suppose they were raised without a father in the home, which Ahmaud Arbery was. He, he was raised without a father in the home. Do you ever think to ask, hey, what were you taught about hand, how to handle an interaction like that? I've had those conversations with black friends, and, and I'm amazed at what they tell me as to how they were taught to handle those interactions. And I usually face plant with my palm. I'm like, oh, that's, that's what you were told? That's, that's not a good idea. I, w I wouldn't handle it that way. Uh, I'm not going to say that. Uh, no, I, I've had that conversation because, I mean, honestly, when it comes down to it, that they, they feel comfortable, you know, coming into the store as a customer. Yeah. You know, and, and, and when I say they, I mean, like, everyone. Like, but to make the world a better place, don't you think you could advise them on how to handle police interactions? Man, that's a weird conversation. And, and I'm not saying that it shouldn't be had. And those are the conversations that probably make the world a better place. Yeah. Right. But at the same time, too. Uh, That's leadership. It, it's it is. getting past awkward, uncomfortable conversations. It is. I tried to have a talk recently. I met a lady at Best Buy, and we started having these sorts of discussions, and she asked me to come speak. It was a combination of kids from Edna Carr and L.B. Landry, and I was going to do it. And she didn't. She got my phone number, and I was supposed to go that next Sunday, and she didn't follow up. But I, th I think that you should do that. I think it would help. I'm not saying that it, it wouldn't help. Especially if you, you made the point that they feel a certain way 
because of the color of their skin. So how how they feel is important, and if you could help to change that to give them positive vibes only, that would help, man. I think you should you should take that leadership role. You should begin to speak up. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not saying I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm not saying that I, I shouldn't speak up. I guess when it when it comes down to it, serious reflection of it is uh, you I could I, save a life. But at the same time, too, like I'm not. I don't want to come off preachy, right? Mm. And and it may sound like, oh man, there should be a better excuse than that. Man, I can't. I can't tell you what it's like to be you. I can't tell you. Of course not. I can't tell you that the way I handle a situation is the best way for you to handle a situation. I have. I disagree, but uh, well, no, no, because all right. So I I have employees, right? Mm-hmm. And and with those employees, I have to be a psychologist as well, because not everybody responds in the same way. Sure, people will shut down. Some people will thrive. If you give too much criticism, if you don't explain, if you try to treat everyone the same way, you will get a different reaction from every single person. That is true. And so by that same message, if being in a small business and, and worrying about the bottom line, so to speak, my thing is to make sure that every customer that comes through that door feels comfortable. They feel comfortable. The soccer mom feels comfortable. The district attorney that comes in there feels comfortable. The drug dealer down the street feels comfortable. Isn't it so interesting that you just used the word bottom line and that's what I criticized? Yeah, no, no, no. I know. I, I, I did it on purpose. Oh. I, I did it on purpose. You know, and, and no, the, the bottom line is 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 ultimately what will affect. But I'm also not putting out a message that can be construed. You're welcome to come in. You're welcome to be a customer. I want to know about your day. I genuinely care. And I want yeah. you to keep coming back. Okay. Me pushing my social agenda on I wouldn't you? see it as that. Uh, I'm just talking about if we had a uniform response as to how to interact with a police person, police officer. You're assuming that the police act in a uniform way. Well, that's a good point. That's a good point, yeah, because they could come up to you and ask you a question like, do you know what you did wrong? Or they could say, how are you today? And so it may be awkward if you said... I'm putting my hands on the steering wheel <laughs> just to make you comfortable. Yeah. I, just, what is it that you need, sir? Yeah. I mean, and and every every police officer is just a different mentality. I mean, yeah. you woke up, but, I mean, if you have a bad day and and whatever, you woke up on the wrong side, whatever, your your wife was talking sweet to some guy at the gym, thanking him for the view, and now you got to go to work and carry a gun. You might be a little short-tempered and you might you might be a little over-aggressive. Well, maybe this conversation is is getting us somewhere. Maybe it's enlightening to someone who is in a position of authority to implement ideas that we can have a uniform discussion between whether it's a white cop, black cop, Hispanic cop, and a white, black, brown, whatever it is, person that's being stopped. Why can't we have a uniform discussion? Like, regardless of whether or not his wife was flirtatious at the gym, it's required of him to approach someone and say this or act this way, conduct themselves in this manner, and then the same for the citizenry. I mean, it sounds great. We should do that. Yeah, it's not going to happen, though. Why not? Because it won't, man. It won't. It won't happen. People think to... But that's something that we should teach in schools. I... 
I mean, if we took 30 minutes on a Tuesday in September and taught all eighth graders how to interact with police or brought in a police person and said, hey, when I stop you, I'm going to do this. I need you to do this. Why wouldn't that be advantageous to society? I mean, it would be. It's just not it's not going to work that way. You you genuinely think that that would work, that people would would buy into that? Why not? Well, I don't, yeah, I, I do. I, I oh, think wow. that I just, we can have a uniform way of this is what happens when a cop yeah, stops I, you. I think I think what you're getting at is there's too much emotion. There's that way too much overwhelms the intellect, right? Like if if you're stopped, you're pissed. Yeah, a lot of people. Yeah, like yeah, I mean, that's a problem. Just in the sense of uh, well, then a, we need more emotional intelligence. We need more education of the emotions. Yeah, well, those people don't tend to be police officers. You know, and, and if you are very good at being a police officer, you're going to get promoted. And the guys who are on the road don't want to be on the road. And if they're not doing their job good enough, they go on and find a new profession. Mm. They don't stay in it for the long term, you know, like just in general. Like where, just, yeah, like you said, if you get pulled over, the whole idea of a state trooper, a highway patrolman, is to catch you. Mm. <laughs> right? It's to park in a spot that looks like their traffic to catch you. Why? So we can pay them money for the state to have money to fix the pothole on the road that the cop just caught you. I mean, it's it's sad that like police officer uh, uh, policing is a game, so to speak. I mean, it's it's cops and robbers, right? So you're it's, saying it's at at odds with the average person what police are doing. I'm not saying it's at odds. I'm just saying that like in general, I mean. If my son told me he wanted to be a police officer or a fireman, I'm damn sure not saying a police officer. Oh, I agree with you. I don't know how anyone would want to be a police officer in today's day and age. Yeah, and and I, and I don't think a 30-minute lesson in the classroom every day or every week or whatever is going to is going to change enough people. I mean, I just I don't see that one happening, man. Mm. I I'm sorry. I hope you're right. Maybe they can start that. They can implement it. I just think that those uh well, we wouldn't know the results. We have sex education in school, and we still end up with high school yeah. girls that are pregnant, so you don't know who's going to pay attention. I, hey, I'm just throwing it out. It's an idea. <laughs> no, that's, you think it's, I'm not saying you're it's wrong. It's dumb, and I, I think uh, it's pretty smart. But so <laughs> Okay. You said that you don't understand why people watch shows with talking heads, and I imagine you're talking about Tucker Carlson, Don Lemon, Cuomo. Those yeah, I mean sorts every folks. yeah, all, all the the mainstream okay. media, so to speak. Right? Why why wouldn't you watch those people? I don't watch them because it's it falls almost in line with political correctness and fake patriotism. Let's give the opinion that we know is going to be absorbed the easiest, because the people who are going there to hear it want to hear it. I mean, we talked about it last time about like just an echo chamber and. And, and how people go to, to have to hear the things that they want reinforced and to develop new no new opinion. Confirmation and, bias. Yes. And so uh, so no. So talking head shows, even even in sports, man, I don't even listen to ESPN anymore. I can't watch it. Like I don't know how much sports radio you consume or anything like that, but it's it's so bad. It's it's where we're at, like as a society in whole, whenever we talk about um Tua, right? Tua Tagovailoa, the quarterback for the Miami Dolphins. He's a bust. He's a bust, right? That's the opinion. He's a bust. Or he's not. He needs more time. 
there's no, oh, oh, I'm sorry. It's not, we'll see. It's he's a bust. He's going to be good. It's binary. Yeah. It, it, it's got to divide. There's no nuance. And that's, you're saying that's what attracts people. I, I, people like allows. the debate. And I'm like, but I don't even understand the enjoyment that people get from the debate. Mm. Like, I guess that's what it is. Like the talking ahead part of it is they want to, they want to be, they want to hear two people go from one, defend one side and the other person defend the other. But like, it's not a real conversation. It is enjoyable. I've been told when I disagree with a guest that people like that. Mm -hmm. It, it shows a level of honesty, I guess, that I'm willing to disagree with a guest. I I guess that's it. Genuine. You talked about being genuine when we first started here tonight, right? That shows that you're genuine, that you're willing to not just go along to get along. We're going to part friends afterward, regardless of whether we have disagreements over issues. You're right. The difference is that we didn't sit down with 13 topics (laughs) and say, Bradley, you're going to be on this side. Jared, you're going to be on that side. We didn't do that. And like, that's what... That's what sports talk shows have evolved into. Yeah, you're right. You know, it started off with like, pardon, uh, pardon the interruption with Mike Wilbon and Tony Kornheiser. That show's been on the air for like 25 years. I mean, I used to watch it every day. It came on at 4:30. It was, you know, Around the Horn, which was a debate show with like four people, and then it was, you know, PTI, and like that was it. They had a list of topics that they ran down. Sometimes they agreed, and then sometimes they didn't. And much like you saying that. You get feedback that whenever you disagree with a guest, people enjoy that. Well, we've been conditioned to debate. We've been conditioned to take a side. So it's not surprising. Mm -hmm. So in the same way that PTI has evolved or has been the birth uh, or caused the birth of so many different types of shows, it's not surprising either. It's caused the the first take and the whatever the hell Fox Sports puts on with, with Shannon Sharp and all. And Skip Bayless, it, it's it's created that. And with ESPN being owned by ABC, it's not surprising that the other the news network has taken that same model that probably started from sports debate, mm. and it has evolved into everything that we consume. If you watch one of the big media networks, it is a this side or that side. Let's see where we get. No one really agrees. Mm. No one really converses. We disagree. And we're trying to find a, a common ground, but that's no common ground. Let's just pick a side. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I haven't, I don't think that people like when I disagree with a guest for reasons that you stated. I think it's more because they're just not used to it because in their everyday lives, they have to constantly be agreeable, which is to me being dishonest, which is going back to what I talked about with. The corporate world and HR departments and Mm -hmm. political correctness, they've been brainwashed to constantly be dishonest in order to put food on their table. So it's hard to blame them, but it does appear to be a brainwashing when you're a bee outside the hive, let's say. Well, I mean, I guess agreeing can be easy. (laughs) Is is that what it is? I mean, is Mm, it? Maybe. That's agree. part of it, you sure. Know, it's kind of like not doing it can be really easy. Agreeing yep. yeah. can be really easy. So, so, so we talked about self-development. What kind of books do you read? When you, when you have a book on your nightstand, what, is, what does that look like? Typically, it's a biography. That's, that's usually what it is. I'd rather know about 
someone, just a life experience where this person felt that it was necessary to, uh, to put it down on paper and, and, and tell the world their story, which is why I get so infatuated with watching documentaries of any type. It's someone's work. It's someone's, I mean, to call it a passion. Yeah, it kind of is to, to know that someone took the time to gather all this information to put it out there. And so whenever someone writes a book about someone, it typically means that they were really trying to find out who this person was, what, what drove them there, you know, whether it be um, like which one was Josh Hamilton, right? The former Texas Rangers player and all that. I mean, that book was so intense, like uh, in a couple really? of times where I just kind of had to put it down. I'm like, man, I'm like, how? Like, how how did someone get to that point where like the demons took over and they saw them taking over and still couldn't fight them off? And then he did. And then he didn't mm-hmm. even after the book. You know, and it was just, it was really rough. And then you read, you know, something like from, from Tom Benson, the owner of the Saints, or former owner of the Saints, you know, the late Tom Benson. And just, you know, that whole whole idea of what he went through and, and, and where he came from and all that. So, so to me, I, I, tend to, I tend to side more along the lines of, of a biography. I prefer the biography over the autobiography because you can shape your own words to make, you know, make yourself seem like Superman if, if need be. But, but sure. someone can expose and, and show some, some real vulnerability if, uh, if the person writing the book about someone can, can get to that person and really kind of shed some light on who they were and, and where they came from. So do you recommend the Josh Hamilton biography? I do. For you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially if you're, if you're speaking to baseball teams, you mm-hmm. know, and, and you went to UL, and I know you spoke at Nichols uh, quite a few times and things like that. I don't see why not. I, it just the daily struggle that that guy went through and, and what he was able to achieve, and then we can look right away, and you can read his Wikipedia page, and saw so he went back to it. Yeah, I would say there's no reason not to read that book. Well, thank you for bringing him up. It bring, it gives me an opportunity to correct something that I've said on a previous episode. I was talking about Rondon Anderson, who is the home run king from our college. When I played at Nickel State, he set the home run record. And I said that he had this whip and his swing that was reminiscent of Bryce Harper. But I was actually thinking of Josh Hamilton. He, oh, had, really? <laughs> he has the whip and his swing that you can't coach. Yeah, Bryce Harper of course, has a pretty swing, but it's not that whip that I'm thinking of. If you watch Josh Hamilton in that home run derby that he won, unbelievable. I think it was at Yankee Stadium, and that is worth YouTubing. It was That a was a goosebump he, moment yes. in itself, just yes. because that was that was on the comeback. You know, that was, yeah, that, that Josh Hamilton home run derby was definitely a goosebump moment for if you were a sports fan. So you may find this interesting. When I was a junior in high school, we played – the number one team in the country. Actually, no, fast forward, senior year, first game of the year. We actually played them the first game of our junior year, but they weren't ranked number one in the country. But when I, when I was a senior, the first game of the season, we played against Spring High School, and they were ranked number one in the country. And they had the best pitcher in the country, whose name was Josh Beckett. Now, he was a junior. He was actually older than me, but that happened a lot in high school. <laughs> Just They have this gap year, or not gap year, this transition year between kindergarten and first grade, evidently, that people in Louisiana aren't privy to anyway so there were a lot of people who were in the class below me but older than me so as unfair as that is we (laughs) played against him and there were probably 30 scouts in the stands with radar guns and clocking him and and it was 96 effortless it was hard to hit but it was understood that he was going to be the top pick in the draft and he wasn't and I think this was 1999. It was like, how could there be anybody that was taken ahead of him as much as he was hyped? And we saw it firsthand how good he is. 
and he was like a can't miss prospect. He's six five two thirty. I mean, he was unbelievable, and he was a great hitter too in high school. People don't realize that. Probably the farthest ball I've ever seen hit by a high schooler was hit by Josh Beckett, pro athlete at the time. Huh? Oh yeah. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> But anyway, there was this kid, I believe he was from North Carolina, that was taken ahead of him. Josh Beckett didn't go in the number one pick. He was the number two pick, and it was a, another guy named Josh. And it was this Josh Hamilton kid, and it was like, no way. How good must he be to have jumped to the top pick over Josh Beckett, who everybody knew was going to be the top pick? So anyway, that's my Josh Hamilton story. So Well, Josh Hamilton, so Josh Beckett, and you got to play against him. That's, that's a unique thing in itself to uh, any other professional baseball players you play against in high school Being- in high school man that's a good question I'd really have to think on it but yeah definitely I mean we we had such a stacked district but guys that weren't that good in high school David Murphy played outfielder for the Rangers he was an outfielder for Klein which was almost a rival uh, but, but that kind of thing happened a lot like he wasn't an outlier by any means he's just was solid and consistent he went to Baylor I played against him in college too actually but people like that I just have to think more on it but yeah definitely we Houston was just stacked with talent so in our district especially so I'm sure there were others I'm just hell out there was a guy that played the outfield with me in high school that played in the big leagues uh Jamie Bubella it was a cup of coffee but he made it the big leagues so Cup of coffee is a lot to be said for, right. for something like that. Yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of even the worst player still good enough to make it there. So yeah. there's no such thing as a bad professional whenever you uh, break it down for what they did and the work that they put in to get to where they were. No so that's doubt. actually uh, – so my son's um, – he's five, and we played travel baseball, <laughs> our travel coach pitch, which is just so weird. But, you know, I mean, the, the travel thing is it's not even really a travel thing. It's, it's tournament baseball. So, like, that's what we'll call it. Like, they play on the weekends. And we traveled between four miles to one park or six miles to the other, right? <laughs> and so we just had our first tournament. Mm-hmm. But actually, his uh, his coach is a former uh, former player at Auburn, so we play baseball at Auburn. So nice. uh, so having my son being coached by, you know, a, a, co- a collegiate baseball player in the developmental stage of his little brain at five years old, he soaks everything in of making sure his knuckles are lined up and everything else <laughs> and so that kind of coaching is just priceless just to be able to you know to, for him to have that experience for him to one day know that uh yeah man whenever you played this age that was uh, your coach played he played for auburn you know so just to kind of go back and tell him that and you have these same stories of of if you have a little boy one day to let him know that you played against some major leaguers whenever you were in high school so don't take any of that for granted because you never know who's watching when I first moved to Houston, there was a kid whose dad claimed to have played for the Texas Rangers. He claimed. In the big leagues. And this was in 1994. And it was about six months ago that I emailed my dad and said, check out this link. That guy never played in the big leagues. Like, but prof- in 94, did he play professional ball, he, at least? Yes, he played double A. He okay. made it to double A. But... In 94, you could claim that you made it to the big leagues and nobody could confirm or verify that, right? So that's interesting that people used to be able to get away with lying about so much that you couldn't nowadays. Well, that's like uh, I know that one thing goes with like the NBA where 
um, just hearing people tell stories about so-and-so was a draft pick back in whatever year because the NBA used to have like 87 rounds. And so like these New York legends on like the street ball courts and stuff were drafted and they were like, yeah, but like they never had a shot, you know? I mean, second round NBA draft pick doesn't even make the roster most of the time. So some of these guys claiming that they were drafted, I'm like, yeah, they were, but it was like the 82nd round in the NBA draft. So mm. yeah, but that's kind of, I don't know. It's kind of shitty for his son, <laughs> especially if his son is. I wonder if his son still or ever believed it, or once his son found Google and was like, "Dad, you, you know, you don't have any stats here." <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, I don't know. What is the Joe Rogan effect? I, I heard you talk about that, and I don't really know what it is. I, it's. I think it's everybody claiming to be smart. <laughs> For, for hearing, I say everybody, that's probably the wrong thing to say, but I think it's just so many people who consume uh, what he says and forget that um, he makes, you know, like dick jokes. Mm. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, like, honestly, I mean, he's a comedian. I mean, he, people, you know, he got people to eat cockroaches. You know, he, he was a sitcom star. You know, he, he grew up now, mind you, like, he is, he is all in on, on anything that, uh, that he wants to to know about. He's a very curious mind, much like yourself, you know, you're, you know, maybe our South Louisiana version of, of Mr. Rogan, <laughs> you know, maybe not quite as jacked or maybe too jacked. I don't know which one it is, but, uh, but no. So I think that Rogan effect of, uh, so many people just regurgitate certain things that they may hear from him, which, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but at the same time too, like, let's, let's back it down a little bit and realize that let's listen to the guests that he may have, you know, and there's a lot of people. And so what, I mean, what I've done in the past is I've almost used him as a guideline for things that I like to listen to. And then there's like Dr. Rhonda Patrick, right? She's been a guest, I think like 10 times or something. She is my absolute favorite guest. She has a website that actually links all of her, all of her visits or all of her, her appearances on Rogan's show and like timestamp certain topics that they talked about. Like she took the time to do that because that's how much the Rogan effect is real because so many people consume it and so many people put so much faith in the things that they hear on the show. And it's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of funny whenever you have a conversation with someone and you know that like that's where their opinion came from. You're like, oh yeah, I heard that too. Mm. And I mean, it's, it's not necessarily a bad thing because it's really no different than watching MSNBC mm. or Fox News whenever they just kind of regurgitate those same opinions, but at least the one that they may have gotten from listening to Rogan is, uh, is a long format. They got to hopefully hear everything and actually process what they were listening to. So, I mean, I don't know how much, how much do you consume of his, uh, of his podcast? I do it based on the guest. If yeah. I read about the guest and I'm interested, I'll listen to it. So, and I, I actually will listen to three hours of the episode. So when I ask people for feedback on this podcast, generally the negative feedback, when I beg for it, they'll give it to me is that, well, it could be shorter. And I say, oh, that's interesting, because I enjoy when Joe Rogan has an interesting guest, and these people like the podcast that I'm talking to, otherwise I wouldn't ask for their opinion. I know that they listen regularly. Uh, but I never wish that a Rogan episode was shorter. But that could be due to the amount of time that I have, to the listen. luxury of having. Yeah, I can listen to a three-hour episode. I have found one thing about him, that on, on Spotify, it'll show the video. Yeah. And when I watch or when I listen, I'll put the video on and I find that I stay more engaged to what the, what the guest is talking about mm. by, by watching them opposed to just listening to them. It forces me to not daydream because sometimes the conversation may lull a little bit, right? So like Apple did a new update on their, on their iPhone with a podcast where it used to have like real speed and then 1.5 and then times two like psycho mode. 
and like now they added like the one and a quarter. And I think like one and a quarter, I don't think any of it, like you should be listening to this on one and a quarter, like at all times. It just, I find it just flows a little bit better. So with Rogan, like always listening to it, like on that 1.25 speed and then having the guests and seeing them. I find it's just, it makes for such a better conversation. It just, mm. it flows the little thought processes because Rogan can be so long winded when he mm. thinks about saying something because mm. he's, he doesn't want to get the words wrong because he knows that so many people are listening to him and, and he doesn't edit. He, everything is, I mean, that's it. Like he talks to someone for three hours. The last one I listened to actually was Amanda Knox. Did you listen to that one by any chance? Not all of it. Maybe the first third of it. Did you watch her documentary on Netflix? Yes. That's some deep stuff, man. That that right there. I like there, her a lot. Yeah, it it's so crazy cuz you talk about how um social media can can influence so much thing so much and like just the the label that she was put on and and how the media in Italy where I mean paparazzi, right? That's an Italian word and and they're they were vicious and and how they had to find someone and they created, you know, created this character of her that was like sex obsessed and everything else. And then this is what it was. And then you hear her speak and she was 20 years old and the interrogation factor of the police that they should probably teach how to interact with each person was definitely not done in Italy <laughs> whenever, uh, whenever that happened. And, and just the stuff she went through being physically, you know, assaulted while she was being interrogated, you know, hit on the head and just deprived of food and water and the mental state of which she went. That's some intense stuff. I think there's, there's probably her and this is going to be bad because I don't remember her name, but the, uh, the North Korean defector. I don't know if you know who I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Her, that's a book that I want to pick up, but I honestly don't know if I can handle it as well. Just the intensity at which, you know, her story of, of escaping North Korea and the the plight of which she was going to go, right? So she was going to escape North Korea to be a sex worker. Mm. Like, that's how bad it is over there. Like, and just to, just to think of that. So, like, that kind, of, that kind of stuff. So the Rogan effect is very good because, like, people like that, her story, you know, it, it has led me to, to be curious, to, to understand how bad things can be for people. And then that's the same thing like Amanda Knox said. So if you, if you did listen to the Amanda Knox interview, she talks about um, people are like, man, I can never believe that you went through something that bad. I, I, nothing ever that bad has happened to me. And she's like, well, that's not true because the worst thing that happened to you is the worst thing that can happen to you. And I'm like, yeah, it's, it's such an easy word. To, it's such an easy way to saying it, but it is true. I mean, just because like what happened to me it may seem worse to everybody else, it's it's still, it, you can only have the worst thing happen to you. That was basically the point of what she said. And yes, that was a pretty bad thing that happened to her. Well, speaking of dishonesty and, and corporate culture, how bad is it in government sectors like district attorneys who feel pressure to find a culprit for a crime? We saw it with, remember the Duke lacrosse situation, yes. how dishonest that DA was. I imagine that was what was going on in Italy too. It's, it's disgusting. But you and I have talked about that dad at baseball games, yeah. youth sports. It's like that person is out there, and you've tried to explain to me that they're everywhere, right? Like that they dad are. is everywhere. Well, those dishonest people are everywhere, and that's why I'm such a big fan. Like you need to study human nature because eventually you will encounter these people too, and you need to optimize the interaction so that you don't get taken advantage of, just as an example. But 
a lot of times you can't help it. A lot of times you hit the shit luck lottery like Amanda Knox did. Yeah, that's and, and just to think that the amount of years that she spent fighting for her freedom and then the guy who was ultimately convicted is he's either like he's going to be out soon or he is out but he served his time like almost in the amount of time that she fought all of this mm. and so yeah i think that's probably one of i think she even said that in the rogan interview like one of the biggest fears anybody can have is just something being like being the wrong person for that like because I mean, what are you going to do who's going to believe you you know we, we are so quick to form an opinion the correction on page two doesn't matter because the article was printed the day before. And I think that that's a lot, you know, a lot she had to deal with. She's, she mentioned about meeting friends in college and then they find out who she is and she's like, Oh my God, now they're not going to want to be my friend. Yeah. You know? And so, so going through that, I think that that's a, that's a rough thing, but yeah, the Rogan effect. Um, I mean, that's, that's predominantly what it is. It's kind of regurgitating certain things. COVID. Uh, yeah. We kind of skipped over that a little bit. Right. So like that was probably the biggest thing. Because Rogan was this big, I mean, I'm not going to say anti-vax. That's probably a little strong. He definitely wasn't in favor of the vax, still not in favor of the vaccine. And he took a very hard stance. Not for those who are healthy and work out all the time, who are health-obsessed like he is. He he doesn't believe they should be forced to be vaccinated. That's you know, what I understand anyway. No, that and that's pretty much what it is. Like, why, if you're healthy and you're not exposed on a daily basis and things like that, then then why be vaccinated? He's playing the odds. He is. And but what governments do is is like everybody has to be 16 in order to drive. Everybody has to be 21 in order to drink, even though you might have been mature enough to drive when you were 14. Others, you have to put a starting point somewhere. Right. It's like you have to apply this blanket rule for everyone. And Rogan is just saying, no, I I take care of myself. I'm an exception. And Mm -hmm. a lot of us are exceptions to what should apply to most people and then he caught COVID and then he got it you know and then he was I think it was what Dr. Sanja Gupta Rogan baffled him I didn't listen to the whole thing but uh he was still talking to Rogan about the vaccine and then um he said well I had COVID and he said yeah you should still get the vaccine he said but my antibodies are higher than than if I would have the vaccine and he didn't have an answer for (laughs) have you had COVID yet I have not I had it did you? Uh, yeah, oh, the whole family. We, wow. were, we were lucky. Yeah, we, we all knocked it out together at the end of July. I had a ser- I was very sick after getting the second Pfizer vaccine, but I did not have COVID. So I you- mean, deathly sick. I, if I had to do it over again, I wouldn't get the vaccine. I was that sick. So uh, had the first shot, caught COVID, and then got the second shot after wow. that. So after the first shot. Uh, for me, it wasn't... Uh, or actually, for all three of us, it really wasn't that bad. I mean, so to speak, um, about three days. I ran fever like one day uh, or one night, maybe two nights, something like did that. You it was go to split. The doctor? I did not. My wife did, and then she tested positive. And meanwhile, she asked, and so of course she's like, "Yeah, all three, of y'all have it." Mm. And so we still never told the little dude because uh, I mean, I think he would freak out. I mean, he was very paranoid about it just because he knew the world was different. Yeah. You know, speaking of, they, you know, kind of calling back to earlier, you know, has the world changed? Yeah, because a five-year-old was very, very, very aware that the world was different. And uh, But, yeah, so we, we had it. Mine was, like I said, fever. But then I couldn't tell because I was sleeping in the other room, and that other room is freezing in our house. So I wasn't sure if it was a fever or not because I'd never it never broke. Mm. And 
was sluggish for like a couple of days, but not really that bad. And then uh, probably took off two days from working out. And then was like, from everything I read, they were like, just power through it. Just do your normal routine. And so I did that. Same thing. My wife, she was congested. And I don't even think she ran a fever. She had like the worst sore throat ever. I think she drank like a gallon of chocolate milk, like three ounces at a time just to soothe it. And then uh, the little dude was congested as well. And uh, he ran fever. His fever probably lasted about four days on and off. And then we were done. And so it was, it was really weird, but, uh, where do you stand on, uh, I don't even, do you want to, do you want to say where you stand on the vaccine part? Well, we got it, my wife and I, primarily because we wanted to travel Mm -hmm. and I have since been to Mexico and Costa Rica and despite being vaccinated, it didn't help one bit. Like they still force you to get tested before you come back. And there's a cost associated with that. They still force you in Costa Rica to get this special insurance that costs like $65 in case you were to be hospitalized because of COVID, which is crazy when you think of the odds and your age and your health. And so I have, I have not benefited from the reason that we got the vaccine, but I understand where Rogan is coming from in that if you're reasonably healthy and of a younger age and and want to play the odds that you shouldn't be forced. I don't like the idea of forcing anyone to do anything really. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, so your primary reason behind getting it was strictly for travel. Yeah, it was, you see, so I guess um, we had different motivations for, uh, for ours. Right. So I was on the fence. I was on the fence, right. The whole time. I I never believed it was going to be the end all cure all to everything. And I didn't believe that, you know, my phone was going to start working better and I was being microchipped either. So I didn't, I didn't believe that either. I had enough friends that were doctors and in the medical field that went ahead and said like, no, like take it, like take the thing, you know, it's better for you. I was still skeptical. I just, I just didn't know. Right. Like just, I I didn't know. And, and scared is probably the right word, but, but apprehensive. And, and we question everything, right? I mean, just yeah. by the, by the way my brain works, I question everything and, and why are they telling me this? And then they tell me that and I'm like, but medicine is a practice. So they're not going to be right the first time. So we give them time and, and let it go and, and kind of see where we go. And then, uh, even getting to like, like, so, uh, Amanda Knox saying like the worst thing that happened to you is the worst thing that ever happened to you. So for me, the worst thing that ever happened to me was my mom dying when I was six years old. Right. So I grew up without a mom. And once the kids started getting this, so that was in late summer, day camps started getting shut down. Overnight camps were done away with because it was starting to spread throughout kids. And that that made me nervous. And then eventually, you know, our kid caught it as well as, you know, his mom and I. But even prior to that was whenever I got my first shot before I caught it. And my biggest fear was leaving him in, in the worst situation that, that I had to deal with was mm-hmm. growing up without a parent because why should he ever not hate me if, if it was because I, I chose not to get this shot that they said would help and then I caught it and then died. Mm. And mind you, the shot may prove to be a terrible thing later on down the road. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, maybe it will. And, and if it is, then I still took the measures to try to not leave him in a situation that would leave him without a parent. Mm. And so that was basically what led my wife and I to getting the shot is we had to do something and I would not be able to handle it if something happened to her or I and and we were forced to be a widow and raise a child because we were stubborn and didn't want to take 
you know, the advice of a lot of doctors. Well, I didn't get so far as to ask my doctor friends because we wanted to get it for purposes of travel. And I didn't ever think beyond that. Mm -hmm. So I might have gotten it anyway. But the reason that we got it was, well, we want to travel to Europe, for example. So we're going to get the shot. And that was it. I didn't think beyond there. Yeah. No, it was it was, uh, it was it was a long process. And like I said, I was never anti, and I was definitely never saying, you better get the shot. How did that impact your life, not having a mom growing up? <sighs> probably <laughs> probably a, a lot in the sense of uh, forced, me, <laughs> forced me to have conversations with people, right? Because everybody was curious of how I was doing. Mm. And so I was constantly asked by a Even lot of people. Even at age 10, 11, 12? Yeah, because, you know, if it was family, they, they all knew that we grew up in a different way. And so, like, my experience with losing a mom was different than my sister's, who's a few years older than me, and my brother, who's, you know, years older than her. And so every one of our experiences were different. Uh, my mom, my sister was forced to, to be a mom, you know, at you know, 13 years old almost to me and, and, and kind of raised me while she was going through becoming a woman, which is crazy to think what she went through, which is probably why she is probably you know one of the smartest and hardest working people that I know because no one was going to give her anything and she wasn't expecting it and so the mama bear was strong in her and in a very good way I think with me I was not probably I was coddled more than I probably should have been right so because people wanted to make sure that I was okay probably why I grew up a fat kid <laughs> they didn't know what to do and and I still stayed active and I still did things but probably why I was a little more spoiled than other kids too, mm. you know? So, I mean, it, it's all things that, that now I could, uh, I can look back and say that it, it helped shape skepticism. It, it helped shape a sense of, I'm not going to say not taking things for granted, but it helped shape a thing of let's appreciate where we're at right now. Mm. And so even, even in the sense of, of seeing someone else enjoy something, seeing my son enjoy something, seeing a friend enjoy something. I didn't have those moments where mom was there to be proud and I'm not mad about it. You know, like I'm not, I'm not resentful for it. I'm not poor me, but I didn't have it. So I'm not a jealous person really. And people may say that whatever, but you can kind of know deep down if you are, if you aren't like, I've always been happy for a friend. Like I've, whatever it may be, you got a new car. Cool. Tell me about it. Show me about it. Whatever. I'm not like, Oh my God, I can't believe what they just bought. No, I don't care. You know, I'm not impressed by your material things. Uh, but uh, but if they're important to you, then I'll ask you about them. You know? How does that relate to not growing up? With, how does that relate to growing up without a mom? Because it, it forced me to find a common ground with people who I knew had different experiences, right? So I can't, I couldn't get mad at my mom. So if my friend was mad at their mom, I was going to be like, well, at least you have one to get mad at, right? Mm -hmm. So it was like, well, if they just got a bunch of crap and they got punished because their mom told them whatever, and then I happen to be there, then it's, let's talk about this. So finding something to talk about. Like they just got the new NCAA football game. Oh, man, tell me about it, whatever. Well, then it got their mind off of being mad about their mom because so many people spend so much time trying to make sure that my mind wasn't missing my mom. So to speak. Does that make sense? Yeah. Does, do you follow that? Yeah, I do. So Luke is five, your son? Yeah, he's knocking on six in January. Okay, so are you constantly aware that you had a mom when you were Luke's age and he's about to become the age at which you didn't? Yeah. I, I mean, to knowing the day at which, you know. So it's going to be, uh, 
Yeah, it's going to be in October of next year that he will be the exact age that I was. And that's wrong. I would know that too. That's you know, cool. and so uh, it's it's the same thing that knowing that at 33, you know, that day it was it was an August day for me that I was the exact same age that she was. You know, whenever she died, and and that was. What she die of? So, ironically enough, my sister and I were having this conversation on the way here, um, just because I need to as I'm as I'm approaching 40, needing to make sure that I'm fully aware of all my medical history and everything else, and I need to. To know as I, you know, go to doctors and things like that, just to have physicals done. So my mom, uh, liver issues run in our family, and she was having liver issues where today uh, it, it was probably cancer, but we don't know just because this was in 1988 and they didn't necessarily, you just kind of went to a general surgeon whenever you were having surgery. It wasn't specialized like it is now. They were actually going to remove part of her liver. And so there were growths on her liver, which chances are was probably cancer. And they were trying to, uh, they were actually trying, my sister told me this, they were trying to get her to come to auctioners here in New Orleans. And she refused. She wanted to stay back home. Uh, my dad was actually in the hospital. He had lost some fingers in a freak accident at work. And so she didn't want to leave. She didn't want to come to auctioners. She wanted to stay there. And while she was in surgery, regular procedure, things were just going wrong in the surgery kind of thing. They were inserting a catheter. And they had air that got in it, and then that air got into her and basically sent her into cardiac arrest. And so that was uh, that was what happened. They lost her in surgery. A lot of complications of surgery. She was bleeding a lot, things like that. So, yeah, I mean, it was it was definitely it was tragic. If it'd be today, no telling what would have happened, just because of more uh, more knowledge out there. So uh, so yeah, so that was um, yeah, that was in 1988, August 25th. Jesus. That uh, that you know she battled that for a while, and so it kind of sent me on the on the plight of growing up as a kid without a parent and, you know, and seeing my dad do his best to raise three kids as well as he could. And with the help of family and the struggles that he had throughout everything and they were real and, you know, and we all kind of made it through it. And, and, you know, we hear, you know, here we are today. So no, it's, it's, it's one of those things where talking about it, I'm not going to say is, uh, is easy, but it's definitely not the hardest thing. I mean, you're never over something like that. You know, I don't have really any memories, I would say it's probably harder for my brother. It's probably harder for my sister because they were older. You don't have any memories of what the days thereafter or the first five years of your life. No, like of the, of like being with her, mm. really. You know, they're they're just not there. I mean, you just don't have memories that last a lifetime, starting at six years old. Mm-hmm. And and we don't have the pictures like we do now. So, how we were saying that the journal on the phone. Well, yeah, if something tragically happened to me, then that account right there will have a lot of memories that that were kept you know for us yeah so that's that's a positive of uh, social media (laughs) yeah geez i didn't know any of that well it's it's one of those where a lot of people i get that reaction like oh i didn't know that well i'm like uh you probably shouldn't, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's, it's not necessarily something that needs to be talked about until we get to that point. And, you know, if the conversation evolves there, then, then we go there. But it, Yeah, and as a man, you keep all that inside. It's like a, it makes you, I don't know, I went through a tough time, as you probably know, when I was like 11, 12. And you don't discuss things unless it comes up. Mm-hmm. You know, like the first time I ever really spilled the beans, quote unquote, was like talking to a psychiatrist. And I'm like, this is a conversation I should be having with a friend. But... I was at an age at which you wouldn't bring that up with a buddy. You know, what's a 12-year-old dude going to 
say that's going to help or whatever. So Yeah, but then again, you you don't know what's profound at 12, so maybe that 12-year-old friend could have could have could have <laughs> right. said anything, you know? It it, it could have been a change of direction. It could have been, you know, just it's just, you know, uh, caring words. You yeah. know, that that's like one of those things where I mean, anytime a death happens, uh, for, you know, in a friend's family or something like that. And I'm not going to say that I have like a standard text, but I always try to convey the message that I wish I had the perfect words for you. And just know that if there's anything I can do, I'm here, yeah. you know, and that's usually the way it is. Like I, I, I can't, you know, don't try to tell anybody it's going to be okay. And even telling someone that I'm here that, you know, for you, whatever, it, it's more like, Hey man, if you need to go get a beer, forget about some shit for a while, give me a shout. Mm. But and if you need somebody to talk to, you're, you're going to find that person if, if you need to. I mean, and, that, and that's what it is. So it, it's just everybody wants to be so concerned. But I can tell you this, too. It, it's not it's not the week after. It's not the month after. It may not even be the year after. If you have a friend that lost someone very close to them. And it's two years down the road that they've really been able to process stuff and think about things and they can get some shit out. Mm. And that's probably e- even for me, like, you know, as, as an adult now where I I could being, you know, considering it happened as long ago as what it did, every year I've had different thoughts about what happened and, and it's just kind of growing old and just becoming wiser. Yeah. And I think that that's kind of what it is, you know, just trying to find the right thought process to get through and, and understand what, I mean, I, a, a, up until 33, it was trying to think about what my mom was thinking about up until that point. And then from then on is trying to think about what my dad went through mm. from 33, you know, or he was 35 at the time on, you know, to where I'm currently at and trying to duplicate things that were right and avoid mistakes that may have been made. And that's kind of what we do in life in general. Right. So how can you absorb that? And that is part of becoming older and wiser. People enjoyed our discussion on parenting so much last time that I thought we'd dedicate an entire section to parenting, sort of like we do fun questions, which we'll get to after parenting questions, if you're cool with it. Sure. So all these questions could be prefaced with as a father. So first, I'm curious, you've heard us talk about that dad on the show. We alluded to it just a bit earlier, but is he out there or... Are you him? <laughs> no, man. He is out there, and you were just saying, man, everybody I know always kind of says, I don't know who that is. Well, does he exist? <laughs> he does exist, Bradley. You know you know why you don't, you know why you haven't met him? Because mm. you have good friends, dude. Mm. That's yeah. why, all right? Like, that's, that's why. You haven't met him because you don't... Hang out with him. Yeah. Yep. That's why you would distance yourself from those that's people. absolutely right. And so th- that was my whole thing. Whenever I heard you say that, I was like, that stuck in my head forever. I'm like, yeah, man, you never met the dad because you don't have those friends. Mm. And, and you're lucky. You know, it's, it's the same thing, too, dating back to our conversation of last time where people politicizing their kids on social media. And you're like, you didn't see it. I'm like, well, man, that's awesome because you have more friends that, that didn't do that. And apparently I had more that did. You know, or at least maybe I was seeking out a little bit more. But yeah, so so as far as that dad, man, they're out there. They're out there a lot. It's a good point. I've noticed friends having some naivete around the human condition or how people behave or conduct themselves in the world or how they're treated and realize that had they had a more wide-ranging experience that they would have handled it better. So just as an example... I was forced as a kid to live with my dad 
in high school who was remarried. And what that had me doing was being thankful for meals that were cooked for me, for example. Whereas I noticed some people who grew up where you're always with your family being entitled to never say thank you. And then in college, when I went off in the summers to play in Kansas or because of the strains in the relationship with my dad, staying with my girlfriend's family, I found myself always being grateful for meals. Just as an example, I'm, I was saying thank you for dinner just about every night of my life mm-hmm. from age like 14 to now, <laughs> right? I thank my wife every night. And when you're around somebody who never says thank you for a meal, it's weird. But that's just one example. Um, there's There have been many times where you will have a family member who is a certain way, whether it's a brother or a cousin, and it helps you relate to people who are different. And you realize that some people have grown up in this homogenized environment where they've never been exposed and therefore have a tougher time in the world, navigating the world. So, Yeah, and, and that same thing. So going back to like my childhood experience and, and being thankful and observe, I mean, it, it's kind of one of those things where like I, I'm appreciative of what my friends have you know, because they appreciate what they may have. And and then you right there. So like the situations shape a similar thought pattern as well, even though they're totally different, you know, like just, just being aware of what people are trying to do for you, make you feel comfortable. And, and then you looking at friends and being like, man, why are you acting like that? You should be happy. And I mean, they're similar in the end, if our our brains are similar in the way we see things and the way we converse and the, you know, and, and things like that. So I think that, Childhood tragedy is something that you either become the bad kid who screws up the rest of their life or you become someone who actually can develop some type of, uh, you know, just some internal thought process and resiliency and things like that. As a father, do you have a favorite moment or instance? Have you had that? To date, I guess, would be something that happened fairly recent in the last few months. And being that my son is so involved in sports, and uh, and something that I, I love, and I'm so thankful that he loves sports up to this point, and I, I hope he continues to, to have that love of sports so we can bond over that whenever he's older. We can visit the ballparks across America and everything else. So uh, so the long-winded answer of, of a proud dad moment was uh, hearing more than one coach from, a, from different sports say how great of a kid he is on the field and how coachable he is. Mm. And, and not being the dad that coaches him everything. So I'm coaching him flag football, but he still plays soccer and he still plays baseball and he plays basketball. And, and so we do all of these activities and hearing more than one coach say that, uh, that he's, you know, he's such a good kid out there on the field. He's, I, I wish, I wish I had that competitiveness whenever I was his age. I hope he doesn't lose it. And he just listens well. So knowing that he's coachable means that he should be teachable means that that should translate into into good things for him you know is the plan what about you what's your what's your proud dad moment so far right oh that my kid is happy that (laughs) she almost a hundred percent of the time returns a smile that is that is huge that's great the the smile is the smile is contagious you know that that whole thing especially coming from a baby if you can't smile back at a baby you don't have a soul right what about an instance where you were the most scared yeah, uh, I mean, any kind of heartbreak, you know, <laughs> yeah. like that's, uh, 
that's the big thing. Heartbreak just, is hard. Yeah, and tragedy just, is built into the human condition. Everyone you know will, and it's going to make them sh- stronger and all that other stuff. But it doesn't mean you want to see it happen. So I mean, just just anytime, anytime your kid's vulnerable, anytime something like that happens. I mean, the the first time you know a girl breaks up with him, or the first time he doesn't make a team that he really wants to make. You know, like that's going to be one of those things where it's just. It's going to suck, but it's going to be a growing moment, and in the end, it'll make them better, but it doesn't mean you want to see it. What would you say is the best part of being a dad? It's the random I love yous. Really? Yeah. I mean, our kid is notorious for just, love you, Dad. I'll probably get Mom, more I love of that you. because I have a girl. Yeah, th- those parts are awesome, and, and honestly, seeing him achieve, right? And so he is so hard on himself. Like hard on himself in a way that doesn't seem normal, <laughs> and you can't teach that either. So, like, kind of going back to where so much of so much of him being on the field playing provides so many opportunities to see him face adversity and mm-hmm. overcome, and like that's one of the things that we love about sports. So, only being five years old, I think we, we did the math, and he's been involved with like an organized sport activity. I think this is like his like 12th or 13th season of like an organized sport activity. So seeing him on the field and just having that adversity of failing and being so mad and so down upon himself. And then his even, and then some of his teammates just encouraging him to get back. And then he goes and and he gets it back. He scores a goal. He makes a shot. He does something. He gets a hit. So seeing those moments right there, like those actually, those are some really proud dad moments right there. Just kind of seeing him overcome that adversity that, you know, as much adversity as a five-year-old can overcome. Does that make you want more kids? You know, kids, kids, more kids, (laughs) probably not going to happen. But at the same time too, like it wasn't ever, we never really cared. If we had a kid, we mm-hmm. had a kid. If we didn't have a kid, we didn't. Mm-hmm. If we had two or three, then whatever. So it was kind of, you know, let it be in his hands, and, and we'll go from there. His with a capital H? Exactly. Gotcha. And so that's kind of where we went. What about yourself? Well, when I was 21, 22, I wanted five kids, <laughs> and then I lived the bachelor life. I never thought I would. I had a girlfriend for six and a half years until even six months after I graduated from college. So... The world I come from in South Louisiana, most of us marry people we knew in high school or college. So I thought I was going to marry my high school sweetheart, and that didn't happen. Then I wondered, well, will I ever marry? But I kind of thought I would. I'm kind of the mar- I'm kind of the family type, and I, I feel this deep-seated need to correct for what I didn't get. And so I always knew I was going to be a dad. And I, I kind of feel like I was meant to be a dad. And a lot of the hard work that I put in, in the corporate world, for example, striving to make more and more money and climbing the, the corporate ladder and all of that, I had in the back of my mind it was to provide for a family. I was just always that way. So our daughter had pneumonia after a month at one month old and seeing her struggle to breathe made me think i don't know if i can do this again <laughs> there you go that, so, that whole thing where you, you can't protect them and you want to and it's really yes. scary and those are those are the scary moments yes something that you might find interesting my wife was asked by her mom whether i was upset that we were having a girl <laughs> which that wasn't the first time we had been asked that question i, I had also been asked that question 
by someone unrelated. And I find that so interesting that they thought I was so keen on having a boy that I would be upset with having a girl, which is... But strangely enough, it happens. Yeah, I it, guess It so. does happen, you know, and I feel bad for those people that do that because, <laughs> yeah, I don't know how you... I don't know. That's, that's an awkward situation for someone to be actually mad that they didn't have the sex of the baby that they wanted to yeah. have. What's the biggest adjustment you've had to make since becoming a dad? Uh, it's just not being selfish, but then you realize that it's very easy to not be selfish whenever you know something, someone so little is completely dependent upon you. So it, it made it easy, but it, I think it also, you know, it's it's a maturing thing. I mean, we, we get older, wiser, you get more mature every day. And so I think that that was part of it where it was so easy to do whatever we wanted when we wanted because we were married, you know, for years without a kid and then having one and then realizing that, man, it's no more selfishness, you know. It's like, anchoring, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and How many years were you married? So Carol and I were married. Well, actually, we just celebrated our 10-year wedding anniversary. Okay, so five years. Yep. And then, so we were married in 2011. Luke was born in 2016. So right at the beginning of the year. So, yep. So that's probably the biggest thing. What about you? Allocation of time. Absolutely. I pride myself on never saying no when I'm asked to do something related to her. So I could be in the flow state writing this awesome paragraph or something. It does not matter. Yeah, I put everything down and attend to her. So I don't get nearly as much done. I'm not as productive, but it doesn't matter because, and I've, I've had this talk with friends. I think as a man, you feel this pull to be productive. I think there's something hardwired about us that makes us want to provide for the family. Yeah, no. And I mean, in order to do that, you have to go out and slay the dragon, it's right? instinctual. Yes. It is. It's very primitive, but it's still the hunter-gatherer sense of the word and everything else. So, yeah, I mean, we're very, very much so. Like, you feel like less of a man if you don't do something productive. Precisely. Yeah. But I find myself being like a stay-at-home dad a lot of the time. So. Yeah, but you're still being productive because yeah, you're there. You're caring for her. It's just in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's do fun questions. And you've been on this show before, so I've had to come up with new ones. Sometimes I ask people the same questions. So you are going to get a different set of questions, my friend. Perfect. This one comes from George Costanza. Is it a lie if you believe it? <laughs> well, if if it's uh, – let's see. I, I know the right answer to that. Let me not trip over my words. <laughs> is it a lie if you believe it? Of course it is because you know it's a lie. Mm. Oh, well, you believe it. That's not to say that you know it's a lie. But then it's not a lie. So, yeah, it's true, right? Who's more likable, Tony Romo or Drew Brees? (laughs) I mean, uh, it's going to be maybe an unpopular opinion, but Drew's a douche. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, many people say that about Tony Romo. Well, yeah, but he doesn't hide his fact like that he (laughs) is, right? So, I mean, I don't know. Like, I don't don't know. Drew has been a covert douche over the years, you're saying? But not even covert, man. Like, the... Whenever he's hurt and he's on the sideline and, like, licking his fingers and taking the the reps, you know, because he's not doing that for anybody to see. And it's it's just kind of one of those things where I'm like, I mean, Drew's my guy, so, I mean, of course, you know, I like him more, but if I had to just... In a like in a vacuum, those two, uh, 
I mean, probably Drew because you get to see the family aspect of him, so he is more likable from that sense, even though he doesn't allow his daughter on television for some reason. So yeah. she's, she seems to be ignored a little bit. But no, but <laughs> I mean, he does seem like a great family guy, and, and Romo doesn't put that out there as much. So I think it's easier to like Drew from that standpoint. If you were put in charge of naming the Washington football team, what would you name them? I would not name them. I would continue with the Washington football team because I think it's funny. I actually think the same way. I actually thought the same thing. Uh, yeah, I, I, I would just, keep I them think, Washington like, football team. <laughs> Daniel Snyder is not a likable guy, and right. what he's done with the organization, with the turmoil that's going throughout there, that's aside from himself. But the fact of him being pressured and resisting, I found that somewhat amusing, even though like, I think we all know that like the Redskin is not an appropriate name of a sports team. But at the same time, like I don't think it really hurt anyone's feeling other than you know white people on twitter so and then him changing it to the washington football team i think was perfect and i would keep it the only reason why i would change it is so he can laugh at people so he can make more money whenever he does change the name because that's all name changes does is generate money great points and you're right something like two percent of americans are on twitter and something like one percent of twitterers produce 80% 80% of the content, yeah. and all it takes is for a few hundred tweeters to pile onto something, and you think it is running the world. Like, these people are around every corner, but Twitter is just this tiny little slice yes. of our society, but they cause a lot of change. It's incredible. If you were a Jeopardy contestant and got to pick the final Jeopardy category, what would it be? You know, at one time, I probably had the perfect answer for that because I had a lot more time to waste on useless knowledge. But I would probably just say uh, any line from the movie Tommy Boy. I know that's very specific, but if but if we're going to try to get all the money, then that's probably what it should be then. <laughs> there was a guy who dressed like Farley in the neighborhood for Halloween. That's a great costume. It's even better whenever kids do it. Barstool usually circulates one of those pictures on Instagram or whatever every year of some parent that dresses their kid up like Matt Foley from, uh, from the SNL skit. Yes, this guy kept saying, in fact, down by the river. <laughs> that's what he kept saying. Okay, would you rather win a gold medal or national championship? National championship. And I would say because, uh, well, I mean, not saying that a gold medal can't be a team sport, but I think the national championship thing resonates so much longer with a community, with a fan base, with, with the teammates that you did it. It'll always be there. So it'll always be that reunion of the whatever year of the championship. So I just think that it's a moment in – especially here in the United States, that, that a teen championship would, uh, would just always just, it would just always be there. It would always galvanize whenever you bring people around to celebrate that championship. Not to denigrate anyone else's answers, but Brent McDonald came up with that question, and that is the best anyone has answered that question. So thank <laughs> you for that. Name one thing that's more important to success than working hard. More important to success than working hard? the benefits of the success, I guess would be. So you worked hard to achieve the success. And so those are going to have certain benefits. So whether it be, um, increase of your, um, what, um, time wealth, right? So, so by working so hard and achieving those, that success, it, it may, uh, increase your, you know, the amount of time that you have to do certain things. And so I think that that would probably be the greatest benefit. That keeps you very consistent with what you said earlier. Right. So that is a good answer, too. 
Okay. My last question is, how can people connect with you if they want to contact you online? Uh, you can go to at It's Parfait on Instagram. Um, also on Twitter. I don't do really any tweeting. It's not like I have any followers. And on Instagram, it's just a bunch of pictures of me trying to uh, live my best life and, uh, you know, maybe be that influencer, but not really one day. But no, that's it. So, I mean, that, you know, keep it fun. It's usually just pictures of doing fun things. Sorry, I lied. That wasn't the last question. How long do you think we just recorded? <sighs> Two hours, maybe, I guess. I don't know, somewhere around there. Two hours and 39 minutes. Well, hopefully it's uh, <laughs> hopefully it's it's good enough for people and uh, I didn't trip over my words or anything like that and, and they found some uh, some good takeaways from this conversation. I know I did. I enjoyed it. I mean, you Likewise. and I could not have the mics on and sit here for another three hours. We definitely could, my friend. Thank you for coming back. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me, brother. Friends, thank you for tuning in. As Parfait said, without microphones, we could have continued for hours and hours. We went off on tangents that I was not anticipating, which usually is where the good stuff comes from when you go off on a tangent. But I can tell you that Yuri Bezmanov is not someone we had planned to discuss. LeBron James and him being a fraud is not something I had intended to talk about, or how even how the world has changed since March 2020. None of that was was planned. The biography of Josh Hamilton is something that I now need to read. That goosebump-inducing home run derby that he partook in in Yankee Stadium, if you have not seen that, highly recommend checking it out. Since this has, has been recorded, I went and listened to the Amanda Knox interview on Joe Rogan. Awesome. Definitely worth listening to. And if you haven't heard the... What is her name? Yonomi, Yonomi Park. I don't want to destroy her. I'm not sure how to say her name. But the North Korean defector, she was also a guest with Jordan Peterson, Joe Rogan. You've got to listen to her story. It's unbelievable. But the Ahmad Arbery case, of course I wasn't planning to discuss that. And I'm not even comfortable sharing my views on the Ahmad Arbery case. But I did, and that's what this show is about, is candor and free thinking and free discussion. So I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Please share the link with a friend if you did enjoy it. And of course, I can be found on Instagram and Twitter at man underscore overseas. Thank you for tuning in, folks. Bye-bye.